You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be obliterated by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is December 16th, 2011. This is episode number 46. We want to make sure to thank our two sponsors, Harvest and MailChimp. I'll tell you more about them as the show goes on. We also want to mention that bandwidth for this episode is provided by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear all of the shows from us here at 5 by 5 and thousands, apparently, of other great podcasts on demand and on the go with Stitcher's free mobile app. Stitcher.com slash 5 is where you go to download it. And apparently you can win 100 bucks. I'm here with uh, John Syracuse, who you may have uh, heard of. He's a new, new writer. Uh learning about some some computers and learning about software. And he's here today to share uh, some experiences relating to uh, those topics. Welcome, and welcome to the internet. Thanks, Dan. How are you today? Just fine. Writing some Perl? Uh, not so much today. Not today? JavaScript today, I think. Woo! Moving up. Mm, lateral. Lateral at best. <laughs> Today is going to be another follow-up filled episode, I think. Oh, yeah? Last week I had that big list to follow up and we went through it and I thought we got through it all. But after the show was over, I saw that there was one big section I'd missed. So I will save that for the end. Uh, but in the meantime, I have more. Well, I guess I count reader mail as a follow-up. I know Marco has like a dedicated reader mail segment. I've always kind of done. It's not reader mail. Sorry. Listener mail. Listener. I've always kind of done listener mail as follow-up because really what they're the people who are right in are talking about are things that we talked about on previous episodes and so it is kind of follow-up so anyway going to be i have a section in my notes now that says reader mail but it's really part of the follow-up okay so i'll start with justin blank who writes about we we're talking about siri and the uh any relation to to sean blank i don't know okay uh, uh talking about siri and the uh inability to find abortion clinics and that whole oh that fiasco uh, yeah yeah, from that we talked about last week, uh, and he he says that there's a, a sort of larger issue beyond the silly idea that oh because it can't find abortion uh, clinics that means that Apple is pro life or something. Uh, sort of a, uh, I guess it's related, but it's he thinks there's more more evidence for this. He, he says, uh, reading from his email, it does look as if Siri has been written with men as its assumed users. Uh, that would explain why Siri is confused by requests for birth control, but does not know what to do with I'm horny. <laughs> oh, no, but does know what to do with I'm right, horny. Right, right, So it, it can't find, it confused by requests for birth control when you say I'm horny. It has, like, clever replies and stuff. Uh, so before I get into whether I think uh, Siri was designed with men in mind or whatever, I, uh, this... This is the the example he gives, and he points to an article called Siri, Sexism, and Silicon Valley, which is at the American Prospect. I put this link in the show notes, uh, which people can read if they want. The, the, the examples that he gives here, I, my question is, first of all, why is being horny something that shows that it was written with men in mind? <laughs> I don't, I don't, because I only, only men only, would Only be. men are horny. Right. Obviously. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. And... The second, why is birth control something that applies to women? Do men, you know, just don't care if they have indiscriminate, you know, babies everywhere? I don't, I don't, those two pieces of evidence I don't find convincing. In fact, I think 
the notion that those show that there's a male slant to things may reveal kind of some gender bias in the the assumptions that underlie you know those things. Uh, now, now he says it's possible these differences are all emergent behavior of some kind, uh, but but it seems surprising to him, and he's. he's uh, Basically, the, the idea that if there's not, it's not some specific conspiracy theory. It's kind of like a, an unconscious bias because it's kind of, oh, we just assume. Kind of like the unconscious bias of saying that it knows how to react to I'm horny, right? Uh, the vets, or maybe, maybe it responds with escort services and they think, oh, women don't frequent escort services or whatever. But the, that it's not a conscious decision on Apple's part to be evil or pro-life or whatever. But it, just, it just falls out of how they do things. Uh, kind of like when we were talking about Pixar. Where, you know, we're saying Pixar movies have male protagonists and tend to have a male point of view. And maybe that falls out of the fact that mm. the directors were all males or whatever. And it's not like a conscious effort to exclude somebody, but it's just something that happens. But I, I think, and I read this this uh, article, The American Prospect. I think the entire thing is just, uh, even though he, he wants to position it as, a, as something different than what I was complaining about. The really dumb people who think that everything that the computer does means that it's like an intelligent being and it's reflecting something. I think, and then this somehow was like, all oh, those people obviously are crazy, but here, look at this. This this shows that there really may be some kind of uh, biased conscious or unconscious baked into there. I think it's the same mistake in both cases. It, it, it's the mistake of assuming that any hole in series understanding is, is a meaningful omission, right? I, I think in reality, if you were to draw like a Venn diagram of the whole of human knowledge and overlay <laughs> on it what Siri understands and knows about, the overlap would be minuscule. So anytime you find anything that's in the non-overlapping region, you go, aha, that shows that, you know, this must have been a, a conscious omission or there's some meaning in this. When in reality, there's no, there's no meaningful, there's almost no meaning to the omission because there's so much that Siri doesn't know about. Siri knows about this tiny sliver of things that it's basically arbitrary what things fall within. Obviously, things like making appointments or things to do with phones, but when it comes to just putting in fun stuff or trying to anticipate what people might possibly say to it and provide a response other than, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Uh, if Apple made any mistake, it was, I don't know if it was a mistake, but the decision that Apple made was apparently, we're going to put responses in to try to cover some of the things we, people, we think people will say in jest to the phone. Like, all those, you know, science fiction questions and other type nerd things that you might be, you know, you have a talking computer. What might you say to a talking computer based on past pop culture or literary references to talking computers and we'll put in clever replies? And then once you start down that path of putting in the little clever replies, if there are areas you don't cover with little clever replies, we'll go, well, they had a clever reply for this, but they didn't have a clever reply for that. Whereas if Siri simply said, I'm sorry, I don't understand every time you said anything that wasn't like using phone functionality, that might have avoided this controversy, but I don't. I I don't think there's any. It's very difficult to be able to read any conscious or unconscious bias into any of these things simply because there's just so much it doesn't cover. It doesn't cover you know to to a good approximation. Siri knows about nothing, right? So anytime you find something that Siri doesn't understand, I I have a hard time uh, getting my dandruff about. Uh, the fact that it doesn't know this because it doesn't know anything. It knows such a little sliver of the world. And I'm not saying this is like uh, defending Apple. Like I said, it may have been, if Apple's goal was to defo- uh, avoid all controversy, it would have been smarter to make the thing just say, I'm sorry, I don't understand that or whatever. Uh, but I think it, overall, you know, in, in, in the aggregate, 
it's more positive experience with Siri because they added all these cute little things in there. And if the price of that is to have people read things into the the bits that the individuals didn't put in, right? Because this is just a bunch of people working there. Some guy right, is, right. oh, we should make it respond to something when we when I say a line from Hitchhiker's Guide because I'm a Hitchhiker's Guide nerd. Yeah, so obviously it's, people are going to put in things from their life experience and maybe it's a bunch of nerds or a bunch of guy nerds. I, I don't even know what the gender makeup of Apple's engineers and the Siri team are. For all I know, it could be all women, right? But that, that's but these people don't know either. So I I don't know. I, I still think it's, it's a non-issue. A non-issue that I continue to talk about, so I guess I'm doing it to myself here. Uh, so the next one is from John Carroll Gavula, hyphenated last name. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, we talked about iBooks last week and the, the like the book page Chrome with the, you know, the, it looks like it's an actual book with the, 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 the spine in the middle and right. all that stuff. And I was saying how that was, you know, pointless and everything and anachronistic and but it served a purpose to make people uh, more comfortable with it and, and drew them in and let them know they could read books and all that other stuff. Uh, but what I did say at some point during that is that anybody who reads books for a long or gets into ebooks and you know decides that that's a medium that they're interested in, they really they, they want to stop reading paper and start reading ebooks, or they they really start to get into the, they will abandon that Chrome. Uh, it will stop being meaningful, meaningful or interesting uh, to them at all, uh, and. Uh, this person wrote in to tell me that he knows some people, his mother-in-law and his wife, who really just love that Chrome and who read a lot of iBooks books. Uh, so, yeah, it's the it's a comfort factor and it has all the marketing benefits. But some people, even after they get into it, they just read book after book after book, still still get a kick out of that. Like it doesn't wear off. You know that the the familiarity and comfort provided by that thing looking like a book is an ongoing benefit. Uh, which I didn't, uh, you know, which, which sort of negates my blanket statement that obviously everyone's going to think that's horrible. You know, people won't. Uh, I, what I think this gets back to, and I responded to this person by email too, is uh, I should have put this in the show notes. The thing I wrote about ebooks a long time ago, uh, and I was making, I was talking about people who said ebooks are bogus because they like real books and there's all these tactile and, you know, sensory advantages of real books and all, all, all these other things that are true about that real books have that ebooks don't. Uh, and what I said was, those people are right. Those things are benefits, and they aren't reproduced by books. And, and the analogy I drew is between people who are really into horses when the, the automobile came along, and there are things, there are experiences of owning and riding a horse that aren't duplicated by cars. One of the things I listed, which I was surprised that people contested me on, was that uh, the smell of, of horses. If you're a horse person and you love horses and you love riding horses, smells associated with horses have have a have meaning to you personally uh, emotionally and they're, they're part of the experience you know books have the same thing people smell like the glue that does, that connects the bindings or the leather if it's a leather round book or whatever the smell experience is, is very important and obviously ebooks don't reproduce that Maybe they smell like a lead solder years ago i don't know if you can smell lead uh, but but you know and what i said was those people are right they're they're not going to get this experience from their horses that you know, from the cars that they have with the horses but eventually, those people will all die, and then we'll all be riding cars. And this is true of people of uh, you know people who are alive right now, who are accustomed to books and find comfort in that. They're, they may find comfort in that those fake book graphics for the entirety of their life. But 
I think that uh, the long-term trend is away from physical books just as it was away from horses. And eventually, the, the people who are really into horses will be in the vast, vast minority and everyone else will drive cars and not, not think for a second what they're missing by not riding a horse. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the march of progress. I, I think already that, that, sort of, that, that choosing, to, choosing to give comfort to those people and aim for them is, is not forward-looking. It's, it's kind of a mistake. It would be like designing your car to try to simulate the things that people loved about horses. Better to just look forward. And it's, kind of, it's, it's backwards for Apple because in all other regards, Apple is so forward-looking. You know, drop the optical disc, drop the floppy drive, uh, get rid of the... The things that are a comfort to people who are used to PCs, you know, uh, only can't install arbitrary software, very simple applications, all all the things that uh, all of us who grew up with with personal computers think are, you know, that's not, you know, uh, well, the things I loved about PCs were configurability and uh, ability to use all my legacy hardware and software and all that stuff. And uh, and Apple said, no, we're we're going forward, we're leaving without you. Whereas right. on, on on this side, mostly because it was. Everyone seems to think that Steve Jobs had a big influence in this, and he he clearly does love physical things, and he grew up with vinyl and and paper books and stuff like that. So he was probably also comforted by those little book graphics. But uh, it is, uh, I, I think it's a mistake, and I think if they should be uh, consistent in their ways. And I mean, I guess Apple does too, because they introduced the the quote unquote full screen mode. Uh, right. It's probably I don't know. I, I keep going back and forth on this. Is it a good idea to have that as a default? Because it's such a great, such great PR. It sells iPads. It looks good on TV. It gets people. It it does serve an important purpose. So I keep going back and forth on whether it should be the default or not. I guess what I would hope for was that it would be the, I don't know, it would be the default on the display models. But then when you got it at home, you might be annoyed. Where's the cool looking book thing? I don't know. Maybe maybe Apple is right on this. The book books is a harder call than the calendar thing because I think the calendar thing has already progressed so much that. How many people use a paper calendar versus keep their calendar in Outlook or whatever? Most working people who work with computers all day long have long since accepted the, the concept of an electronic calendar, at the very least for work. So making it look like a paper calendar is just wasted. Whereas most people I don't think have come over to ebooks yet and making it look like a paper book may be less wasted on them. I don't know. But it was a good point that there are people who derive a continue, an ongoing benefit and enjoyment from from this thing. I think it's a real phenomenon. I don't I think it's you can't dismiss those people, but I think all those people including us will eventually die and it won't be, you know, that time marches on. Uh one last one from Fred Sendel. Oh, the Fred Sendel uh email. Yeah. What's up with Apple's aversion to ergonomics? Yeah. They have great design, always beautiful stuff, but I think they could do this and also integrate ergonomics. Try the Magic Mouse. It's not comfortable. I have their wireless keyboard, which is fine, but it can be much more comfortable. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on past shows. I I don't like a lot of Apple's ergonomics too, and uh, always what I uh, the, the, I ascribe their failure to a devotion to visual design, right? Which takes dominance over ergonomics. So when when it comes down to this, could be more comfortable, but it would be uglier. They go with make it make it beautiful, right? And my big one I complained about a while back was the half-size arrow keys. Obviously, as someone who uses arrow keys a lot, I think programmers use arrow keys a lot more. Maybe oh, yeah. not. Maybe not if they're VI users, but uh, <laughs> Mac users anyway use arrows a lot more. Uh, if you're a Mac programmer, 
And they're half-sized because if they weren't, they would poke out of the perfect rectangle area made for keyboards on laptops. So why don't, you know, it's not, it's not as comfortable to use a half-sized arrow key. Uh, but in that, when that debate comes up, hey, you know, we, could, we have plenty of room on this laptop to, you know, to push down the arrow keys and have a, a regular full-size keys like in a little inverted T. And lots of PC laptops do that. But those, those people that, you know, are never winning that. Not that that's, that, that's a minor ergonomic issue. Full-size keys are slightly more ergonomic than half-size keys. Uh, but for things from, like mice, the same type of deal. Those big, chunky mice, it's not as clear-cut with mice because people hold mice in different ways. If you rest your hand on top of it, a flatter mice, or even like a puck mouse. I know a lot of people who really love the puck mouse, aside from the alignment issues of figuring out which way it was up. Uh, they like the fact that it was low profile. And if you, if you use the mouse like that, a low mouse is good for you. But if you grip it from the sides, you want something that fills your hands so your hands aren't like kind of poised above it. Right. You know, you want something to rest your palm on. So like Logitech and Microsoft make larger mice like that. So I don't think that the case with the mice is as clear cut as people make it out to be. But there are people who want a higher mouse, a bigger mouse that fills their adult size hand. And Apple doesn't make one of those. I think Apple's biggest ergonomic sin with the Magic Mouse is that you have to not have finger touching the left button when you press the right button right so you've got to do this little dance almost like in the way an insect or a crab would uh, move if in a, in a mating dance you have to do this weird lift one finger touch the other yeah and some people do that automatically and yeah. they'll say well what's the problem i don't you know they won't even you'll you'll tell them about this and they will n- have never been aware of that problem because they do that no matter what but if you don't do that you will quickly find that it's registering a left click when you really meant a right click and if there were actual separate buttons and what would be the big deal with separate buttons like most modern mice, it's not like you need a bunch of cut lines. You need one little thin line between the two halves, and then the plastic flex is enough. A lot of you know, modern mice have that. They just have one. It's still one piece of plastic for the top of the mouse. It's just a cut down the middle, and it, you know, it bends down the right and left. It doesn't matter. You're touching the left side, but you're pressing two separate switches. Uh, but no, they don't want that cut line. So, and they want, I guess they also want it to look like a single-button mouse, and I think that's still how it defaults. If yes, you buy it. It, it definitely does default to a working like a single mouse button until you manually go in and change yeah. it. I think putting in that cut line would be a big upgrade and it also wouldn't confuse people because if someone doesn't know it about double buttons, they still can't hit the wrong button. The fact that there are two, maybe that will give them pause, but I don't think they'd even notice that there were two buttons if you make the cut line very subtle on the, on the mouse. Uh, so are there ergonomic things that Apple does? We talked about the slippery little uh, pill iPod stuff where... It looks very nice, but if it's something that's meant to be held in your hand, probably making it slippery is a bad idea, especially if it's breakable that hits the ground. Uh, they've gone back and forth on that. Uh, the, the edges on, on laptops, Marco's had some good macro photography on his website showing that Apple has actually made the edge of its uh, unibody aluminum MacBook slightly less sharp, but still pretty darn sharp. And for people who rest their wrists, which you should not do, by the way, it's... Ergonomically speaking, it's not a good idea to rest your wrists on anything while typing because it compresses everything in there and really you're, you're, they should be up and your hands should be... Anyway, if you don't have any problems with RSA and you rest your wrists or you're just in between typing you like to rest your wrists, there's a sharp edge there. Dulled down a little bit or not, that's not the best ergonomically speaking, uh, but it looks really nice, right? When you, especially when you close it up, that line is really nice and it looks like a nice machine. You know, so it's not rounded over because rounded over look less elegant. In many, many areas of the handles, the handles on the G5 and Power Mac case, they look nice. But if, if you're supposed to use them in your hands to pick a 50-pound machine, those handles are not 
comfortable. They're not aligned right. They're they're metal that digs into your hands. And it's not just to the record. It's not like Apple doesn't know how to do this. If you look at the older G4s, the blue, you know, the you remember your old blue and white G3 that you had, how great that thing was to to grab hold of and move around. Yeah, it was a little bit better and uh, a lot I think better. The, the the best ones were the I think it was the Quicksilvers where they had a it was thick, completely clear handles. They were curved on the bottom as well as the top. Because the the G4 and G3 handles were solid on the top but had like kind of a scaffolding framework behind them. So right. it wasn't wasn't a solid back surface. So the Quicksilvers were solid there. But yeah, so they they had done it better. But I think that, you know, when it, that's because in that particular case there was not a tension between design and ergonomics, visual design and ergonomics. And this this is kind of what gets me with a lot of Steve Jobs always talking about design is how it works. It's not what it looks like and stuff. He obviously had a weak spot when it came to that because ergonomics is part of design. And if you're, if you're going to keep harping on, well, it's really how, how it works, not what it looks like. They, he also, and they, everyone also wants it to look really awesome. And in, in particular cases, when there's a conflict between looking awesome and being the best ergonomically, Apple, under the second reign of Steve Jobs, chose to make things look better a lot of the time. Uh, sometimes, I think very foolishly, but it will be interesting to see if that changes now that Jobs is gone, if we see some some decisions where something that doesn't look as nice as it could, but is ergonomically better. I think I did that whole show about uh, things looking good as they wear out. Right. So that was actually in the Jobs bio where I think someone brought that up, you know, the stainless steel back of an iPod. I think this was pre-iPhone. Uh, and how you know it looks awesome in photos when you buy it, but as soon as you touch it, fingerprints go on. It's it gets scratched if you know almost instantly if you put it near anything, and then eventually it's all scratched up. And what Steve Jobs said was, "I actually kind of really like the look of scratched up, uh, shiny stainless steel." Maybe he does, uh, or he could just be rationalizing. I don't know. Does he like the look of fingerprints on stainless steel? Maybe he likes that too. Does he? You know, it's. <laughs> Uh, people have different tastes, it's true, uh, but we all just generally, like, the, the the reason I think that Apple Apple products are not designed to look good as they wear uh, is that all of Apple's product photography and all their commercials, the devices are basically untouched by human hands. They're, like, pristine, perfect. They might, the, people always think they're 3D renders. They look so awesome. That's, that's a testament to the people who do product photography for Apple, but realistically speaking... No device ever touched by a human will look like the ones in Apple's product photos. They're practically, you know, photographed in a vacuum chamber or, you know, an <laughs> Intel clean room. Right. And if, and if they really thought their products looked awesome as they wore out, as Steve Jobs seemed to, they were, I would imagine there would be some sort of like advertisement showing your emotional connection to the iPod you've had for a long time. That's another thing. Apple really doesn't want you to have your iPods for a long time. They want you to buy a new one. But, you know, Kind of like car commercials will occasionally show the guy who's got the Honda with a million miles in it. It's like a 1982 Honda, right? Uh, and it's not it's not beat up, but it doesn't look like a new car. And they'll do like the magazine ad or whatever, showing the guy standing or her standing next to his old VW, saying, "You know, right. this is, I've had this for three hundred thousand miles." And it's yeah, wonderful. Look at it. Yeah, it's you know, it's not. It it's always looks good, but it, it looks like a car that's been used. And they're saying this is a beautiful thing. Our machines are so durable and tough, and you can have them. And as they age, they they look nice as they, as they were. This is not so much an ergonomic issue as a, as a reliability issue, but that's another place where I, I, I brought up is another place where there's a tension between looking good 
when you take it out of the box and something that will continue to look good later. And when it comes down to that choice, Apple seems to pick, well, we know this is the back of this thing is going to be filled with fingerprints and scratched up and everything, but man, it looks great when it's new. Uh, so that's our choice. Instead of picking a material that is both ergonomically better, like won't slip out of your hand, and will look better six months into use. Uh, with, with all their devices, they do that. Handheld, desktop, everything. Uh, if anything, I would say there's more room on the desktop to make something that looks like a piece of sculpture because you're not carrying it around. You're not manipulating it. So that can look awesome for a longer period of time. You know? All right, and uh, speaking of the Isaacson bio, there was a story this week that uh, uh, this was in Fortune, Fortune Magazine at CNN. I don't even know the business relationship with these entities anymore. Uh, link in the show notes. That the jobs biography could expand. Uh, Isaacson saying that he, he might expand the book. He said one possibility is doing an extensively annotated version. I think that would have a lot of value because although he does have the big like bibliography in the back of sources and when he interviewed you and stuff, uh, who, uh, who he interviewed when, it's not easy to map individual quotes and stuff back to things. And one of the many, many complaints that I and other people have had about the books is it's not always easy to tell when someone is speaking, when someone's being quoted, what is this from? Is that someone speaking now? Was that someone speaking uh, in the 80s? Uh, you know, you can't tell when the interview that that gave this uh, information took place and whether it was performed by the author or not or whether he's just, you know, retelling something from another source. Uh, so an annotated version, I think, would... would uh, it would do wonders to help resolve some of those mysteries, right? Yeah, and, and if a lot of people are talking about, like, well, you know, so we did a bad job with the bio, whatever, but I guess people can use it as reference material and maybe he'll release his material. This would be like partially uh, along the road to, you know, releasing all of his notes and all of his interviews. If he taped them, if he transcribed his interviews, I don't know what his research looks like and if there is this big font of uh, source material that he could release. Well, but you the, know, the, least, the, book, the book just wrote itself, John. Yeah. It just wrote itself. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's like I didn't have to do anything. Right. The book just, it just wrote itself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so that's one possibility. And another is writing an addendum that addresses the period surrounding Jobs' death, which Jobs is death. They did Jobs in this Fortune article, J-O-B-S apostrophe. And you don't know, like that? No, I don't like that at all. Isn't that perfectly valid, though? It's just a stylistic decision? I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, it, it, different style guides have different th- different rules for that. And a lot of people like to do, the, the big one is Jesus. Right. So a lot of people like to do Jesus with the apostrophe after the S to say something that belongs to Jesus. And one of, one of the rules I've seen where like, it's like people bargaining, like, well, if you're talking about somebody from 2,000 years ago, you're allowed to do it because of tradition. That's how it's always been written. But really, everything should be apostrophe S. I'm big on J-O-B-S apostrophe S. Any name that ends in S. I always do that. But apparently not CNN.com or Fortune or whatever this articles from uh so so anyway yeah expanding the, the period around his death because obviously he died uh, the book was supposedly finished around june and he wasn't he wasn't dead yet then so it, something had to be added to say that to indicate that eventually he died but there's more there's more information now that you could add i would imagine this is what i imagined if isaacson expanded it to include more information on his death he would just like pull quotes from the that article in the new york times from from mona simpson like he, he wouldn't, I, I don't know. Like I say he wouldn't do any research himself. He just looked at what everyone else wrote. And well, but, you know, himself. the book would have to continue to write itself. Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't actually you know, want to mess that up. But I don't. I mean, I I think there's 
and this gets back to him being interested in the human the human interest aspects of his life like oh you need to know how he died and about us that's like personal stuff that is not it does that illuminate his life more or tell us more about what he did that was important you know i don't not not that i you know, say oh you you complain that he didn't do enough didn't have enough content and now you're complaining when he wants to expand it i guess it's fine but of all the things that he would what I'm getting at is that people say, well, is this going to make you happy when he goes back and does this? Annotated version, I think, would be useful uh, for for future people. And because it, if he doesn't release all his source material, this is a better way for people to get a handle on what he actually did and where he got his information so they can better do a m- more scholarly books down the line. Uh, but if I want him to go back and flesh stuff out, it wouldn't be the part about when he dies. That's not, I, I, you know... That's not the most lacking part of the book. If anything, he dwelled on the whole cancer and death thing uh, it, out of proportion with the other portions of his life that I thought were it, it, just as or more important or certainly longer, you know, because he was dying for how many years and he was, you know, he had he was known to have cancer for how many years and how many years before that he, he didn't. Uh, so it seemed a little bit out of proportion. So we'll see what comes of that. Uh, I don't know if I will rebuy the book. In a perfect world, my Amazon Kindle copy would be auto-updated, but Amazon has no clue how to update their eBooks. I think they send you an email, and then you have to reply in an email with the word yes in it or something. It's like going back to the 90s. Like, <laughs> and then you have to re-download it, and you lose all your notes. And Yeah. Yeah, that's a mess. Uh, next one. This is, this is a link, but it's also a follow-up because it's a topic we've talked about a lot. Uh, this is from Guy English, who has a website slash blog called, let me make you look at the name so I don't mess it up. Kicking Bear? Kicking Bear. Yeah. I wonder if there's an about page where he explains what that comes from. It's got a bear on it. I don't. He doesn't really look like he's kicking. Anyway, uh, he wrote what I think is the, the most interesting and best guess so far. It doesn't mean I think it's accurate, but it's, it's most interesting to me because I haven't seen other people talk about it. Uh, of what an Apple television set would be like. He said, it's called How I'd Build an Apple Television Set. Uh, did you read this one? I did. So here's, here's what I thought was really... So we've been talking about, does Apple make a television set itself? Uh, do they just make the box? Do they make both? If you, ma- you know, if you make the set, how do you upgrade the thing in it? Are they separate, but then there'd be too many wires... Uh, you know, but Apple want to make a TV set because it's, it's a more expensive product, so the, the, the profit would be larger on it. All these things we talked about in past shows. So here's his very interesting idea. So you've got the television set, the, the screen, and there would just be one wire coming out of that screen, which would be the power cable. This is a lot like the original 22-inch Apple Cinema display, which just had one wire poking out of the back of right. it. It was the most elemental monitor Apple had made to that point, possibly ever. And that one wire poking out of the back of it was an ADC port, which, which you would plug into the back of your computer, and that would provide power and the video signal and everything. So in this case, there would be one cord coming out of the back of this television, and it would be a power plug that plugs into your wall, and that's it. So that, that satisfies one of Apple's simplicity things. And also, he, I don't think he mentions this, but I also assume there's no other places to plug things into this television. It is like just, a, you can see pictures in your head, like a perfectly elegant simple, probably aluminum-backed screen with a power cord and a stand, and that's all. 
All right. And but you, you wouldn't just buy that though, because then you know if it just has a plug, how doesn't do anything, right? Right. It would also come with a little Apple TV box, which would look kind of similar to the one now, maybe a little bit different, but it's a separate box. And that separate box would not connect to the television with a wire. So the separate box would obviously have to have a power plug, uh, uh, but it would communicate with the television set wirelessly. I think he says, uh, does he say Bluetooth or maybe Wi-Fi? No, I think he says Wi-Fi. Some, wire, some standard wireless technology that has sufficient bandwidth for high-definition video and, and, uh, and Wi-Fi qualifies. Uh, and it would probably, you'd probably have it somewhere in the same room as the TV, or if not near it or whatever. Now, here, here's where I think it gets interesting. Well, one one place it gets interesting is how he envisions the little box getting onto your Wi-Fi network. And he brought this up because of some things he was reading about Bluetooth 4.0, and uh, the, uh, which a chip is apparently in the iPhone 4S, but the support isn't in the OS yet. So Apple's getting uh, hardware and software vendors ready for Bluetooth 4.0, uh, which I'm assuming in a future OS update will be enabled in the iPhone 4S. And one of the one of the things that that was talked about in these articles uh, about that is the the idea that a device, a new Apple device that you bring into your home and turn on, and it wants to get on your Wi-Fi network, mm-hmm. instead of you having to say like, pick your SSID from a pop-up menu or type in the name of it, and then type in the password for your Wi-Fi network that you don't remember, uh, you know, and uh, that whole process of getting a device on your network. I don't know how many times you've done this, but like I've done it with my Wii. And oh PlayStation yeah, you get to do it all. And just, it's a hassle. Yeah, and it is. It's not, it's not a great, even for people who know what they're doing, getting my TiVo on the wireless network, it's just always a hassle because each device has its own little interface, especially if it's a TV device where you're using the little remote control to try to enter your Wi-Fi password and God forbid you change your Wi-Fi password, forget the, but forget to change the password on the TiVo upstairs and, and realize two weeks later that it hasn't been getting program info, you know. <laughs> Or doing it on your Wii or PlayStation or anything like that. It's just a hassle. And that's for us. We know what we're doing. We know the difference in, you know, WEP and WPA and WPA2 and MAC address validate. Like, we know about this stuff and it's still annoying. So people who don't know, I just, you know, that's why I fear sometimes recommending a hardware device to somebody like, oh, yeah, you should go get one of these things and <laughs> just envision them taking this thing home and opening it up and being like, all right, so how do I get to the internet? Right. Do I have, it says something about Wi-Fi. Do I have that? And, you know, because they've just got whatever, you know, the cable company came and installed the router and like maybe they don't have anything that's wireless or maybe they just have their phones, but they always use it on 3G. You have no idea what's going on in people's houses and it's a big hassle. And this is exactly something that you think Apple would want not to deal with. You want customers not to deal with. So since Apple has all these different things saying, well, you bring an Apple device into your home and what it would do is look around and interrogate the other Apple devices that are already on your network and ask them, What's the Wi-Fi connection info here? Right. What do I do? Yeah. Help me out. Yeah, and it can do that because you know it's got it's got uh, the Bonjour thing where it can it has discoverability, and you can have you know well-known ports and demons listening on these other devices to talk to it. And it's not to be some authentication. It's not like you could just bring a new device into your house and say, "Oh, I'm automatically on your network." Ha ha! Because that's you know a horrible security hole. But what it would do, and the example he gives here is that uh, you you'd plug in the Apple TV thing. And then say it would find your iPhone and it would pop up a little notification on your iPhone that says, hey, it looks like this new Apple TV device in the house and it wants on the network. Should we let it? And you just say yes. And wherever that is, say that comes up on your Mac, on your, on your iPod, on your iPhone, any Apple device that could be found that knows the answers to these questions of how to get on my Wi-Fi network. On that device, it will pop up something that says someone's asking to get on the network. Should I let it? Yes or no. And if you say yes, uh, you've given permission to this thing to get on your network. 
uh, it will it's say, like okay, the, you know, it's like the buddy system. It's like a buddy system. Yeah, and it would say, okay, I'll tell this device how to do it. And it would send the device, okay, here's here's the SSID, here's the password, here's the encryption you should use. You know, it would just tell it the information. And this is, I think this is a great idea, and I assume Apple will do it. I assume everyone will eventually do it if they can. But Apple is uniquely positioned to do it because a household with an Apple TV device, especially at this point, is very likely to have an iPhone, a Mac, an iPad, uh, an iPod Touch, one of those things somewhere already on the Wi-Fi network that was put on the old-fashioned way, right? Uh, doesn't help the guy who gets Apple TV as their very first Apple device. They still have to go through the same, you know, getting on your Wi-Fi network stuff or whatever. But it's something they can do to help. Um, and the second thing that I think is really interesting about this uh, that I hadn't heard, read anywhere else, uh, and I think is is uh, a great way to cut through this thing, is that the other thing on the back of the Apple TV box are HDMI ports, and they're inputs, not outputs. So there's no inputs on the television, but there's inputs on the Apple TV box. I think that's a nice division of labor, where the screen is just a screen that presumably you wouldn't replace a lot. That's like, oh, the people don't replace their TVs a lot. And it's just literally just a screen. And not putting stuff on the back of it gets you out of the thing where like, oh, I bought an HDTV in in 2001, but it doesn't have HDMI in the back. I'm sorry if I got that date wrong. I figured when HDMI became common on the back. It's got component video, and that's it. For, for a long time, there were HD televisions without HDMI because HDMI hadn't been invented yet. Right? And then there's oh, HDMI 1.4 versus 1.0, and one can't carry Ethernet over it, or one doesn't do HDCP the right way or support the right, you know. All that stuff, all the reasons you might replace a television set are tied to things that are on the back of the television set or inside the television set that become obsolete. And that doesn't happen quickly, but it does happen. So if you just make a screen, like a display... The only thing that can change in that is, well, there's a new screen technology that's better than this, or your thing like burns out or breaks or something, right? So by getting all that stuff off and just having the power plug, you're allowed to have the big, expensive, you know, $1,000, $2,000 screen, depending on how big it is, for a long time, like a television. And you put the stuff that might that needs to be replaced, HDMI inputs, maybe HDMI gets replaced with, like, you know, Thunderbolt or something in the future, or God knows, uh, it, the the CPU that's in there that that gets better every year. The amount of RAM, the OS that it runs. You know, you will replace your little Apple TV box, but you will not replace the television. And having the inputs in the back means that you're not signing up for this Apple only lifestyle, where like, oh, well, I need I need this thing to replace all of my content because presumably what you could plug into those HDMI ports are the output from your TiVo, the output from your cable box, the output from your satellite system, right? And that would go through the Apple TV, and the Apple TV would be the waypoint for it. But you could still use your Apple TV. To, you wouldn't. You wouldn't need Apple TV to completely replace your viewing experience. It would just be a supplement to the same way it is now. Now it's it's kind of reversed. Where you take the Apple TV and you plug it into input number two, three, or four on the back of your existing TV, and all the other stuff are plugged into the other inputs. Now it's saying move all the inputs to the Apple TV. Get your Apple TV screen. Uh, and I I think that's a nice division of labor in terms of recognizing the fact that Apple won't have enough content on day one to replace everyone's entertainment needs immediately, right? Uh, so you have to provide some path forward to the future, but it does make the little box kind of a central controlling place for all your other stuff. And it also bypasses like, well, you know, I still like a DVR. I want to record stuff. Apple's not going to make a DVR. Fine. Still have your DVR. You know, you're, it's connected to... It, it makes the Apple TV central. It's not the omnivorous box that I was talking about, but it makes the the Apple TV the central device in your entertainment stack simply because everything goes through it. You know, even if it's just psychological, right? It becomes like, I'm, 
I, I use Apple TV. I don't watch TV. And yeah, I can see my cable and my uh, other stuff there. But really, I'm using Apple TV. It's, it's, the, it's the main, it's the hub of my entertainment center. And then there's a bit in here about the remote having a little touch control on it to swipe around instead of having a bunch of buttons. I found that less convincing. I think we're all, I mean, not that I think it's not going to happen or anything. I just think that that's only a small incremental step over having a four-way button. Uh, and he's saying, you know, the, the Siri thing, well, it's got just got one little thing on it where you can swipe around. It works kind of like a five-way type thing. But if you press and hold, it becomes Siri and you're talking to the little mic. And we already talked about that before, you know. Uh, show me the latest episode of whatever thing you're doing. And it's easier than going through a bunch of menu systems. So kudos to Guy English for providing what I think is the best, <laughs> the best completely speculative uh, take on Apple television. It's the nicest thing I've ever heard you say. Not true. About anybody or anything ever. <laughs> no. No. It's true. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what do you think of that? Does that sound... Is that, is that not it's, the best Apple, ID, <laughs> Apple TV idea you've heard? It's the best one I've heard this week. Yeah, you're right. You're right that they do keep coming, but like I hear the same things. Over, you know, you hear the same thing. That's all Siri. You should be able to talk to it, and then it's magic. And or, or they don't have enough content. They won't make a TV. They will. People don't buy. You know, well, the arguments keep going around and around. This is the first concrete proposal that addresses some of those concerns. Not really the input one, but at the very least, the whole why would Apple ever make a television set, and how is that even feasible? Mm-hmm. All right. How how are you doing today, John? I'm okay. Yeah, okay. Maybe we ought to take a quick sponsor break. Give you a chance to catch That's a good breath. idea. I'll take a drink. You've only been talking for forty minutes straight. All right. All right. Uh, you know, I d- didn't want to interrupt here on a roll. First sponsor is Harvest. I was just using it today. I use these guys like crazy. This is great. I love this service. It's it's Harvest. It's painless time tracking and invoicing. Companies like uh, like us, like 5x5, five five, we use it. Happy Cog uses it. I'm sure you've heard of Volkswagen. They use it. Lots of companies. And what is it? It's a painless way to track time and keep track of your project budgets. You send your clients uh, professional invoices. You can get it to them via email. You can do these uh, the PDF things. Or you just get, give them access on the web and they can see it. It lets you accept uh, online credit card and check payments and more. And they have a free companion iPhone app. They've got an Android app for you, John Syracuse. They have uh, built-in functions that lets you track time and expenses on the go. So John Syracuse goes out to WWDC. He goes, he sits down to eat his Whopper, and he realizes this is to count against my per diem, but I'll never remember the receipt. So what does he do? Pulls out his iPhone or his Nexus, whatever it is. He takes a picture of the receipt, uploads it right in the app. This integrates with all your favorite uh, small business apps like Google Apps and Basecamp. Here's what you do. You try it for free for 30 days. You don't give them your credit card. You don't sign up for anything long-term. You just go to getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 This is a 30-day free trial. You fu- Use the whole thing. Use the app the way you want to use it. And after the trial period comes to an end and you say, I can't live without this, you enter in this, this code. And the code will be in the show notes. And the code is 5 by 5 tv you get 50% off your first month. You got to do this, though, by January 31st, 2012. So you got, you got more than a month. Come on. But anyway, getharvest.com slash 5 by 5 Thanks very much uh, to them for making this show possible. You can use that app, aren't you? 
Happy Cog to Volkswagen. That is a span of clients. It's a big That's span. I think five by five is dead center, right in the middle there. No, you're you're very close to the Happy Cog end. Not the Volkswagen end? <laughs> no, not the Volkswagen AG, whatever the initials are after that holding company that owns Audi and Lamborghini and Porsche. I need, I need a holding company. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Harvest. Love those guys. Oh, and we also want to mention that our, uh, our show notes, which uh, John Syracuse has been referring to repeatedly, uh, are, are brought to you in part by uh, the, the lovely ladies at uh, HelpSpot.com, the best help desk software in the world. What's next? So, do you get more? I do. Or are we done? Show's done. No, no, I've got more. And okay. now I'm fearing that I'm not, also not going to get to the thing that I left out. Oh, we'll show. get to the we'll, thing, the thing, the thing. We'll see how long, it, we'll see how long this section we'll goes. We'll get to it. So one of the advantages, uh, I always complain about uh, having a Friday slot, even though you know, it is the best real, slot, be honest. Well, realistically speaking, it doesn't matter. Because like, oh, everyone else gets to go before me. Well, it depends on what your frame of reference is, or just because you arbitrarily decide the week begins on Sunday. But in reality, the business week does kind of begin there. And think there is a weekly cycle to news and events. So sometimes I, I get annoyed that other people get first crack at the topics that I'm interested in uh, on other shows that I listen to. And I go, man, I wanted to talk about that. Now he's going to say everything I wanted to say, and I'm going to be demotivated. Uh, but the advantage is, that they can say things that give me ideas for stuff to talk about on my show. Uh, so uh, that happened this week when I was listening to the talk show where uh, John was talking about his appearance on The Verge. Right. And one of the topics that was brought up by Joshua Topolsky uh, and that you guys talked about on the show was the, the angle that Joshua seemed to have when interviewing John Gruber on The Verge was about fanboyism and bias. Like sure. That was one, one aspect of it anyway. Uh, and it's an aspect that you guys talked about. Uh, and it's something I, I wanted to talk about in relation to John for a while, but didn't want to like bring it up out of the blue because it would seem like I, it would seem like I was doing what Joshua was doing, which was like, of all the things to talk about, this is what you want to concentrate on. This mm-hmm. is the most interesting thing about John Gruber. You want to, you want to talk about bias and, and stuff like that. But since he already did it and you guys already talked about it, now I can, I can frame it as follow-up on okay. a... Uh, a section uh, that I heard you talk about. Yeah. Yeah, Gruber, Gruber, uh, Gruber started by saying that like he doesn't like the term fanboy because it's it's dismissive and it's right. Uh, it's it, it's it's something you keep. There's no rebuttal for that. It sort of is dismissive of the whole. So if 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 somebody who is an Apple uh, is writing something is known to write things that tend to be more positive about Apple stuff, regardless of the reason whether it's true or not. If you label that person or or what that person does a fanboy, that's it's very dismissive. This is his argument, and I, I I do agree with it. Is that it's very dismissive of pretty much anything the person does. You you say, oh well, he's he's just an Apple fanboy. So it, it's like saying, well, uh, we can disregard what he says because he's deluded, and the, it, you can throw the whole argument away, even if it's a hundred percent true and perfectly valid and supported. Doesn't matter. He's a fanboy. Yeah, that's it's, that's it's, what John was complaining about. I think. I, mean, I hope I'm representing. Yeah, and, and basically, anything like this, like the word fanboy or whatever. Once you're once you're saying what somebody is, you're not talking about what they do, right? You're not you're not addressing their actions or their statements. You're saying, regardless of their actions or statements, they are this thing. It's it's a state of being right. that negates all of their actions. So it's like oh, it's not even worth talking about their actions because he is this thing. Yeah, and this thing inherently. Uh, is not worth you know listening to 
and and that's that's just completely unfair. Tossed and, out the window and silly, right? But what most people are trying to say by saying someone is a fanboy is they're saying the things that they do make me think that they are this this uh, bad thing that this fanboy that that it only, it right. only thinks good things. But not I don't now I don't never like the word fanboy because it's kind of silly. The word I always come to when I think about evaluating what somebody says, I don't want really don't want to get into politics. I'm going to try very hard to avoid politics in this discussion. So we'll just talk about tech blogs. I'm going to reading somebody, <laughs> reading somebody tech, tech blog uh, to see if I can see where they're coming from or whether I think uh, what, what is motivated, what they're saying or what kind of things can I expect this person to say so on and so forth. And my favorite, favorite word about this is partisan. Which again might remind you of politics. It does. Uh, is that not I, just a purely political word? I looked up the definition, hoping that the definition would reinforce my impression of the word partisan. But its definition is kind of is vague. You know. Uh, uh, let me actually. Do I have to stop there? So the app, little Apple dictionary. It's just. I mean, partisan means what you think it means. So when you say something is partisan, it's prejudiced in favor of a particular cause. Well, that's a very vague, you know, definition. Whatever. Or the number one definition is a noun is a strong support of a party cause or person. Party is thrown in there again because of the political connection. I'm assuming that's what they mean, right? Uh, and I also like the definition number two: a member of an armed group formed to fight secretly against an occupying force, in particular one operating in enemy-occupied Yugoslavia, Italy, and parts of Europe in World War II. That's not what I mean. Uh, so, <laughs> but I th- I think of partisan. I use that word because in politics there are many partisans. And I heard this, I wish I could remember this, many, many years ago, I heard this big philosophical debate about different people's positions and talking heads on television as it relates to politics. And the distinction was always about whether someone's a partisan or not. And that would color how you might view what they what they say. Right. Um, and here's here's my definition of a partisan in tech and politics or anything like that. It's somebody on a particular topic who starts from a premise, whatever that premise may be. The premise is chocolate cake is good. And then what they do is gather all evidence and report all facts in support of this premise, but minimize or ignore facts that are counter to it. People that are allergic to chocolate or whatever. I'm trying to pick a silly example so people don't go nuts. But in politics... I think we can all recognize a partisan. Like when you see, oh, I'm doing it, here I am. When you see someone on television uh, who's a talking head and you know before they open their mouth what they're going to say. What they're going to say is they're in favor of X and they're against Y. And there's nothing this person is going to say ever that will uh, be counter to that. Or, you know, someone on television, talk radio host, some people you, like, I, I, I can't help it. I got to, I'm sorry, guys, I got to do it. Rush Limbaugh, right? or someone on talk radio, right-wing talk radio. Rush Limbaugh's thing, his shtick, his premise, his his whole thing is based on the idea that he's right and and that other people are wrong about, you know, I'm not going to go into individual issues, right? So even if when he says, you know, I was wrong on this, he's always going to frame it in a way that him admitting him being wrong is him being magnanimous and showing, you know, like... Everything is about how right they are. And you know what they're going to say. You know, you know they're going to be in favor of, something, of some particular thing and against something else. And it's just never going to change. You're not going to turn around and the next day they're going to come, you know what, that thing I've been against for years and years, actually I changed my mind. It's not going to happen. They are a partisan. They have, they, have, they have a premise. And 
Their job is it was every fiber of their being is to support that premise, to do everything they can. If they get called on something, if they do something that's against that premise, they will just construct their life, their show, their personality, their everything around the idea that there's nothing that can happen, nothing anyone can say, nothing, nothing, no event, no fact, no anything that can dissuade them from that premise. And their job is to argue forcefully for that premise. Uh, and that, that's, that's the most extreme case of a partisan. And partisans tend not to be that interesting. Because if you know what they're going to say before they say it, and there, you see these people on news programs all the time, like you know this guy's going to come out, you know, the ACLU guy. You know he's going to be, I'm trying to flip it around people here, you, you know he's going to be in favor of, uh, you know, against anything that, that, that stops anyone's freedom or the libertarian guy or whatever. You, you know what position they're going to, they're not going to, the ACLU guy is not going to go, you know what, I think you're right. In this particular case, in this specific instance, the good of the many outweighs the good of the individual. And this is, this is a, this <laughs> is a right. There you go quoting Spock be, again. <laughs> this is a right that should be compromised slightly in this specific case. They're not going to do that. No. Like, right. So, there is, and people, you might think I'm going to say, well, that's a, that's a dishonorable thing to do. To be a partisan is dishonorable because you're not being, this is the word that you guys talked about, like, you're not being objective. Uh, you're not, you're not, uh, if you can't, if the facts can't change your opinion, then what, what good, you're obviously not even thinking about this issue, right? I think there is value in partisans and in listening to what partisans have to say because since their entire life is dedicated to forming the, the strongest possible argument in favor of, of their premise, if you're interested in what are the strongest arguments in favor of this premise, a partisan is probably the guy to go to because that's all they, all they do all day is figure out how can I convince people chocolate cake is awesome? What, what evidence can I gather to that end? How can I show people that anyone who says chocolate cake is not good or wrong? Mm. Right? Uh, and... Uh, it doesn't, that person isn't particularly balanced and you can't take what everything they say at, at face value. But if you're looking for what is the strongest argument in favor of chocolate cake, a chocolate cake partisan is a great source for that information. Um, now, getting back to Gruber for a second. One of the things he said in the show that he says to people who call him a fanboy and stuff like that is, uh, tell, me where, tell me what I wrote that was wrong. Like instead of just, you know, instead of telling me what I am, I'm a fanboy or, or, you know, I'm whatever. Look at my actual actions. Look at the words I actually wrote and show me which one of the ones that I wrote you think is wrong. Instead of just talking about who I am and why that negates everything I will ever say. Um, and if we think back to what I just talked about as a partisan, you, if you are like a, a good partisan and more, more, <laughs> an more honorable partisan, it's very, it's very possible that you will never say anything untrue and still be uh, still be a partisan. Like, what you've done is, is gather the strongest, most valid arguments supported by actual facts in favor of your position. Uh, and so there's nothing... When you do that thing, tell me, tell me what I wrote that was wrong. Nobody can find one, because there's none. Everything you said, any fact you presented was you're not misrepresenting facts, you're not distorting the truth, you're not... You know, you are just simply... Picking the facts that support your position and providing arguments in support of it. So, I think although although that's a good way to switch the focus from what am I uh, to talk about what I'm actually doing, I don't think that it refutes the premise that you might be a, a partisan because you just might be the best partisan ever or a very good one and you uh, an honest one that doesn't you know, misrepresent the facts but nevertheless ignores facts that are counter to your thing and and the the worst sin of the partisan though is that nothing could ever possibly happen to change your opinion 
And that's the one that really gets people. They're like, even though everything you said was right, I just have this feeling that if the facts changed, you wouldn't change, and you'd still be saying exactly the same thing. And people lose interest in that type of thing, except for people who just want to hear their opinions echoed back to them. And there are a lot of those people. But for like the, you know, I don't know, the, the discerning, ner- the, the people listening to this show, I don't know, <laughs> the critical thinkers, you're much less interested in somebody once you've decided, based on what you've seen of this person, that there's no fact that will ever change their opinion about everything. They've simply, they've chose their premise in 1982, and they're going to support it till the day they die, and they become less interesting. You're less interested in what they have to say. Or after you've heard all the strongest possible arguments, especially if the facts change drastically, and they just keep droning on and on about, you know, whatever. Like, one example I was thinking of is, say, I don't know if these people exist, but say there's like a, a, a Windows mobile, Win, WinCE enthusiast, who's like, WinCE is awesome, it is the best mobile operating system, it's going to dominate the world, and my premise is that, is that WinCE is the future. And no matter how the facts change, you know, Palm comes along and is doing well. No, WinC is still going to win. And then the iPhone comes along and they change to Windows Mobile. Windows Mobile is awesome. It's going to wipe out the iPhone. And then Windows 7 comes. Like, Windows, you know, no matter, no matter how small Windows Mobile market share gets, no matter how many reviews say Windows Mobile is not yet up to snuff with the iPhone and stuff like that, they will continue, you know, th- their opinion won't change. Uh, and the sneaky thing those people do is like they'll switch over to Windows 7 and say, I was always in favor of Windows 7. Or Windows C sucked, but, you know, they were. A window seat where it's like the, the facts don't change and you, you're not interested in listening to what that person has to say because like they're just stuck on this thing they're never going to get over it and they're not they're not giving me any new insight into what's happening now they're just telling me about something that they picked a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you also talk about objective versus fair right I think we read a good quote that, uh, that even toddlers have, have a keen sense of fairness right because they can see the other kids got something <laughs> they don't have yeah it. Uh, and fairness, fairness has kind of been co-opted by Fox News because it's their slogan, fair and balanced. But even it, all the news, the big complaint about all the news media is they've been chastised or shamed into the idea of fairness of just being, well, you got to have a pro and a con guy for every single thing. Uh, and people have said, that's stupid. The news should be more of a referee. And sometimes you don't need to have the anti the earth is round guy on tv right you can have the pro earth is round guy on tv but that's too boring so you need the anti-earth you need the flat earth guy mm-hmm. and that's 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 fair because yeah and people say well this is this is the disease of television and news media they they think they have to show the both sides of anything even when one side is stupid uh i don't think that's the sickness is not wanting to show both sides of everything the sickness in in the media this is boy this is for going off the rails here, but I'll, I'll bring it back, I promise. Uh, the, the, the sickness in the media is not having both sides of everything. It's being lazy about fact-checking, basically. Uh, and I think the internet is great about that whole the internet fact-checking sites, you know, uh, factcheck.org. Uh, what is that? Is Politico a fact-checking site? There's whole, tons of fact-checking sites, right? And so you know, like, if you're watching the Republican debates or whatever, or any presidential debate and stuff like that, all the nerds are like, after the debate is over, go to the fact-check sites and see who was lying, who was mistaken about something, who quoted a statistic that was intentionally, obviously intentionally misleading. And when they have these debates where they say, you said this in 1982, no, I did not. Or you voted for this, no, I did not. Find out, who, find out what the actual facts are. It's sad that we have to wait until the televised debate is over, go to a website and find out what those answers are. I, you know, I, I'm, as a nerd watching this, I'm like, why can't there be automatic real-time feed from the fact check people researching this to say, uh, you know, five minutes ago when this guy said that, actually, he's wrong, and it really is X or Y or Z, right? 
but like that's that I feel like is the responsibility of of good media is to be the fact checkers. You're not taking sides by checking facts. You're just ver- you know you're just verifying statements, and me- the media has shied away from doing that. So I don't think their se- their their sin is always wanting to show both sides so they can't be accused of bias. I think their their sin is being so afraid to check facts that if the facts all line up against one side or the other, then they'll say, "Oh, you're biased," you know, because the flat earth guy, all the facts lined up against him. And it's like, well, you are not being fair because you totally dumped on that flat earth guy by showing him pictures of the earth from the moon, showing a giant big circle thing. That's not fair. You know, and that was, that was uh, Gruber's other thing that uh, reality seems to have a, an apple bias. So bringing this back around, the question, the question I think is, does, uh, does John Gruber behave like a partisan? That that's that's the question. I always say it is John Gruber partisan, but I just got through saying we shouldn't say what the or the R aren't. But like, are you convinced from John Gruber's actions that there's nothing that could happen that would change his position, whatever position you think uh, that he's complaining about? I, I I will start by saying that I think. Tell me what I wrote that was wrong. Fact checking wise, I think, and I think this is widely misinterpreted when he said on the show, like what I'm worried worried about is being wrong. He didn't mean like being wrong on his opinion. Really, he meant like I mean. I don't know. I don't want to say exactly what you mean, but I, I get the impression that the thing that would bother him the most is getting facts wrong in a post because he feels that's his responsibility. Find out what the actual facts are. Don't just think, don't just, you know, he doesn't do a lot of speculation uh, about, you know, like fig- find out what the actual facts are and put them in the thing and don't write something. Don't be the guy who writes something that says, yeah, well, uh, you know, this company did X, Y, and Z and they never revealed PQ and, and find out that that's not true, that they really actually did do that. Don't. Check your facts. And if you don't have the facts, make it clear that you're saying party X says this is true. You know, uh, I, I get the impression that that's what he means by not being wrong. Secondarily, he also means based on the facts that he's gathered, he believes that this is what will actually happen. He doesn't want to be wrong about that either. Like when he says, if he says uh, the iPad's going to sell like crazy and the iPad is a humongous flop. That right. would bother him because he was wrong about the iPad. But that's clearly like a prediction. You know, I'm predicting this is going to happen. Both of those things. So I, so I think that when he says, tell me what I wrote that was wrong, he means find me a fact that I got wrong because if there is a fact like that, I, I will correct it because I don't want to have incorrect facts on my site versus someone like Rush Limbaugh who does not say, please tell me where I was wrong, honestly speaking. And someone says, well, actually, when you said this, that's not the case. He's not going to take that correction and apologize for the mistake in the next show. He's going to refute the corrector in every possible way he can, you know, uh, misleading or, you know, or or denigrating the the person who said this or saying how even though he was wrong, it doesn't matter because the larger point still stands and just will not take the correction at face value. So, yep, blew it. You're right. That's And then we'll not examine like, okay, so. Is that a correction that that does negate my point, or is it just a minor correction? He, he's not intellectually honest about that type of thing. I, I think John Gruber 100% would be intellectually honest about any correction, about any fact. And I think he's shown that through his actions, that if someone corrects him on something or he got something wrong, he says he got it wrong and apologizes for it and doesn't do it in a snarky kind of, but you're still a jerk way. He does it as an apology, it, like because this is what he's priding himself on. Get, getting the facts right, being intellectually honest. That's the other phrase, you know, partisan is not intellectually honest. And intellectually honesty means that you, means that you're not, you don't have dogma and you don't, you're not worth doing everything from a premise. You are taking all input that you can find and using it to uh, formulate your opinion and always reevaluating. Uh, 
And so the second part, like I said, of being a partisan is uh, nothing will change your opinion. And I think Gruber has shown that that's not the case either because uh, there are many cases where the, the facts change and his opinion changed on things. And he will write about the fact that, you know, <coughs> excuse me, that now, now that the facts have changed, I have a different stance on this, right? Or even if it's just something as simple as I predicted something that would happen and it didn't happen, therefore I have to reevaluate what led me to that conclusion and see what I was wrong about. Uh, the hard thing in Gruber's case, which he brought up, and I think he should have hammered on even more, is the people who accuse him of being a partisan, they believe his premise is that Apple is good, Apple is awesome, everything Apple does is great. That's what, that's what they, they believe his premise is. When they see a, say he's a fanboy, they mean he's a partisan who believes everything Apple, done, Apple does is great and will only say things in support of Apple being great and will ignore all other things. Right? And the, the uncomfortable reality of, of this premise is that John Gruber started his writing and... Uh, uh, from the position that it looked like Apple had really great stuff that he liked that he thought was better than everything else. And it just so happens that over the next decade, Apple was humongously successful, right? You know, they, everything about them, which was up, 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 sold huge numbers of things, entered new industries, were critically acclaimed, you know, just, just you know, for, to a first approximation, did everything right. And so if you think, oh, your premise is that Apple does it, is great at everything, does everything right, who is it in the tech industry that was doing things better than Apple during? It just so happens that the thing you think that his, it was his premise is the reality. Apple has done really well. People really like their products. They make a lot of money. They're very successful. And, you know, is it his fault that that was his premise? You'd have a stronger case if his premise was that Apple is awesome, everything they make is great, and they're going to be massively successful. And he made this prediction in 1986. And they slowly almost went out of business. And by 1997, he was still saying, Apple is great. They're the best company in the world. Everything they make is awesome. They're not doing anything wrong. And you're a bunch of jerks. Then you'd have a case. But if he says that he really likes Apple stuff, he thinks they're the best products in the market, and Apple is fantastically successful, and he doesn't change his position, well, maybe he didn't change his position because he didn't see any evidence that was countered to it. And that burns some people up too because they don't like Apple or whatever. But that may, it would be easier. It, I think there would be more evidence of his intellectual honesty if the facts did not align. Right. If things didn't, if the, if the actual reality didn't support the argument. Right. Because then, then you'd have more cases of conflict. I think there have been cases of conflict where he's, he's made bad calls or predicted things incorrectly. And I think there is evidence of him being intellectually honest in, in that regard. But there's not a lot of them because for the most part, Apple. All the things that he'd liked have been very successful. Well, you make an interesting point, and that is, I think, and I was talking to John about this, uh, Daring Fireball started, I think, in 2001 or two, yeah, like in that time period. 2002. 2002, okay. I always get it confused with Hive Logic, which I started right around the same time, and uh, went, it went nowhere. So, Don't you think he should have started in 2001, uh, though, with the Kubrick thing? It would have been better. Opportunity missed. Yeah, right, huge opportunity missed. Uh, and maybe maybe people would respect him a little bit more today if he had. Just something to think about. Uh, if, if he had started much later, it, w- it would almost be a little bit easier because as you as you mentioned at that time apple was not doing what what it's doing today 
uh, it's if he had started it years later, if he'd started, let's just say in 2007 and wrote essentially everything that he wrote starting with 2007 on, it would be much tougher, I think, to go back and, and say, well, he's always said this because always wouldn't have been a long amount of time and Apple would have been more successful. Um, you know, for, for whatever reason, Apple is one of those companies where liking them, there's always been something associated with a person who likes Apple or likes the stuff that Apple does. I mean, you remember this because you were using Macs way, way back in the early days. And this was back in the time and people may, you know, I think a lot of our audiences, you know, it's made up of longtime Mac users. I think there's just as many people who are relatively new, new in the sense of, remember, the first Mac came out in 1984. So if you started using Macs in 94, you still haven't been using Macs as long as they've been around. You've been using it not even half as long as they've been around. So if you started, let's say you started using Macs in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you're a new, from our standpoint, you're new. You're still new. If you've just got your first Mac, second Mac, you're like brand new to the air. You know, you're, you're new here. You just showed up. So from that standpoint, if you look back and you look back at people like you who probably, you know, the very, very first Mac was one of your very first machines that you liked using. And back then we were, as Mac users, labeled as like different, but it wasn't a good kind of different. It wasn't the think different kind of different. It was like, Oh, a Mac? Yeah. Uh, are you like, do you do desktop publishing? Because that's, isn't that just really what you use them for? Isn't that it? And there was this negative connotation, usually, uh, except among the people who used Macs. And then it was a very, very popular, like you'd find out somebody was a Mac user. It, it, it would be the equivalent of finding out that they grew up like around the block and went to the same grade school that you went to or something. I mean, it was like finding, you know, a, 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 a friendly face in the crowd. And it's, it's certainly not that way now. And I think, I think we're better for it in general, but there was, there was that negative connotation. And I think that that negative feeling, or maybe, maybe negative is too strong of a word, but whatever that sentiment was, I think it was still prevalent in 2001, 2002 to some degree that writing about the Mac saying, look, look what Apple's doing. They're doing some pretty cool things. That was not by any stretch of the imagination, that was not the majority's opinion. And uh, there was certainly not a lot of respect back then around what Apple was doing. I think it was changing. I think it was changing. It's not, and the analogy I frequently think of is it's not like going and saying, wait, which, uh, which football team uh, just won the Super Bowl? Okay, that's my team next year. I'm going to like them next year. It's, it, that's not what I think John Gruber was doing. I think he, he picked the technology that he liked and that was the most interesting, and it happened to be Apple, and Apple happened to do very well. I think the only, the only way to test this is what? How do you test this, John? Well, so I, I actually, I, get, I want to give the other side of it in support of people saying he's a partisan. Because there is a, there is an opposite side to that, and I want to explain why. You would like to play? Do, do you agree with which side? Do you agree with? Oh, I, I don't, I'll, I'll get to that at the end. Oh, okay. I, I don't want to. So I, I'm I, I, most, I mostly do not think he's a partisan, but let's do like, well, let, Let's get want, into that. No, I wanted, I wanted to say let's let's hear that because I want to. I think people are now all of a sudden very curious to know why. Uh, but let's do our second sponsor. It's Mailchimp.com. 
easy email newsletters? I've talked about these guys before. How much do you say about them? You say you, you want to send 12,000 emails a month for free? You can do that. You want to send 50 emails a month? You can do that too. It's free. And it stays free. It's free like that forever. And they've come out with a whole bunch of these new resources. They're free again. And they cover pretty much every topic that you, you, you might want to use. Do you want to send an email newsletter? Do you think it's a simple thing to do? Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you should go and find out. And they have a guide that explains some of the pitfalls. Like, how do you avoid spam? You send somebody a newsletter, even if they subscribe to it, half the time it shows up as spam. You can avoid that. How do, how do you make your email newsletter look really good in mail app? And also, well, what's this one they use on the PC? Outlook? Is that what they like? It'll look good in that too. Email security? I didn't know there was such a thing. There is. They have a guide about it. Designing to, to look really good in mobile on an iPhone, on Android? They have a guide about that. You go to MailChimp.com. It's right there. Thanks to those guys for making the show possible. Again, love them. All right, so you, you do not think that he behaves like a partisan. Well, I, I want to talk about why people think he is one. Okay. Like, why, why, is that, why is that sentiment so, so prevalent? Uh, and is there, is there, are there things in support of that? And are there places where he, where he strays from things? So the, I think he's coming from a similar place where we talk, getting back to like, you know, back in before the Mac was popular, maybe even pre iMac or around the time of the iMac when it was still a hard sell to say that, that, that Macs were. And, and he was a Mac user not as far back as I was, but from far enough back where he had the same reaction as I did, where you're using these Macs, which are marginal computers, uh, because like the real computer users don't use them, and people make fun of you and stuff like that. But they have qualities that you decide are so important and that, that they, that, Macs are so much better in these aspects than any other computer that it boggles your mind that people don't see that they're better. All right? And this was definitely my experience uh, of using a, a Mac early on was that there was DOS and then the Macintosh came out. Right. And people would say, no, nah, I like DOS. And you would say, are you looking at the same two things that I'm looking at? <laughs> right. How, ca- how can you like that? Right. Because it's not, it's not close. It's not like, oh, there's subtle differences <laughs> in elegance that... like. <laughs> DOS right. and the Mac. This is before Windows 3.1 anything, right? It was just so stark, and you saw this thing and thought it was awesome and just amazing and had these qualities that just pushed all your buttons, but it didn't, it didn't push other people's buttons, or it didn't, it didn't push other people's buttons enough to make up for all the other factors that were much more important to them. Like, their priorities were different. Software compatibility, trust in, in IBM, uh, you know, uh, price, just other factors that just dominated these things that you considered important. And since your value system, the way you rank these things was so different than them, it was difficult to understand why, like, it wasn't so much that they didn't see what you saw, it's just they, they valued it so little, like, and, and because of that, and because it became like this war, this Mac PC war, uh, they would tell you that not only do I value things, and do I prioritize things differently than you do, but in fact, considered in isolation, the things that you care about graphical excellence and elegance and ease of use, you're actually even wrong on those because DOS is actually exactly as easy to use as the Mac uh, or it's more easy to use than the Mac. And actually, there isn't even, even in the ones, even if I was to stipulate that the number one most important thing about a computer was how elegant the interface was or, uh, you know, or how seamless it was or how, how, how well maintained the illusion that, that, that was being presented of the, uh, you know, what's inside the computer was. Even if I was to stipulate that, that was the number one concern, I still think the PC is better. Uh, and that's just, you know, that was an example of people going partisan or like, you know, you are wrong in every possible way that you could be wrong. Uh, rather than the more subtle argument, which is, 
although the Mac is, you know, friendlier and more and more elegant, those aren't the most important things to me or to business or to the market in general. And therefore, the PC is going to win or whatever. They wouldn't, you know, that's that's not a strong enough argument. The partisan partisan would say your argument is weakened by that. So you should you should profess that you really believe that the Mac is is uh, not any easier to use than DOS, and you would you would say why, right? So that kind of environment, especially to you know, Gruber and I were young at the time this was going on, or relatively young, it it bothers us that this thing that we think is great, that people's priorities don't match ours, and that they they can't they don't seem to be intellectually honest about. Uh, the advantages that our thing has. They can't even admit that we're better in this area and just instead argue the more subtle point that the priority should be different, right? Although some people argued that as well. Now, in in terms of all the other stuff, I, th- I think Gruber still feels that. Apple devices and things are better in ways that he thinks are, are the most important. A great example is, you know, iOS is responsiveness. So he's harping on the laggy scrolling and stuff in Android and stuff like that. Um, and Or... Just the, the seamlessness of the experience where they've got the store, they've got the software, they get a full circle type of experience. No, you know, no third parties coming mucking it up, no carrier software in there getting in your way. It's just, you know, it's one whole thing. You know, that those those things are very important to Gruber and other iOS fans. And people who don't value them as much, what what, what Gruber's vision is like I'm not only going to argue that this is better, that the, the uh, Apple's products are better in these areas that I consider important. I'm also going to try to convince you that they actually are important, right? Uh, and one of the things I'm going to use to try to convince you that they actually are important is in the case of Apple's new things, is to say, look at how much people want the iPhone. Look at how much people want iPads. Uh, you say that it shouldn't matter and that Android is selling more, and it shows that the things that you care about, uh, Gruber, are not actually that important. People don't really care. Uh, Android phones are better in all these other ways that I can explain to you, and the fact that they don't have this thing, this, this you know, it's not an intangible, but to them it's intangible. The, the reason they don't have this thing that you consider important means that Apple stuff is better. Uh, what I see mostly in the, in the fanboy complaints and, and the partisan complaints is this different choice of value system between the two parties is not is not reconciled and what they what they're both using to try to reconcile this difference in value system are facts from the market and i think that's a i i don't first of all i don't think that's a strong argument to make but that's what they've got to go on is the facts in the market right uh for the same reason you know the anti side is that like well that's that's what the PC people used against us in the Mac PC wars. It's like, well, if you if this was really that important, if people really cared about a seamless GUI experience and elegance and stuff like that, wouldn't the Mac be selling better, right? And what you can use the flip side one now is like, well, there's humongous lines for the new iPhone. People are super excited about it. The iPhone and uh, you know and engenders this really fierce enthusiasm, and people love it. People love their iPhones. So he just had one recently that. People were getting mugged, and the people didn't want the Android phones. They just wanted the iPhones, right? There's this, you know, and this shows that this quality that you didn't think was important actually is really important, and people go nuts for it. And where are the lines for the Android phone? That pulls both sides into the realm of, I mean, I mean, how, else, how are you supposed to decide whose value system is correct? They're, they're using the, the facts, the reality, as their like, tiebreakers, as their 
as the referee to say, you know, uh, who, who's right about these values. Um, but if but if you're just not convinced about if you just think that value system is not the right one, it's going to look like this guy is constantly harping on this this thing that's not true. And all he's doing is gathering up all possible evidence, you know, facts from the market, people, opinions, or whatever, showing that his he he's trying to tell you that his value system is correct, and you're just never going to be convinced that his value system is correct. Like because there's, there's two aspects of that one is my value system is correct, therefore, and most people agree with me. Therefore, because this phone is better in these in these aspects, it will be the most successful. And the other one is regardless of whether this phone is successful, this is the best phone. Period. And even if no one in the entire world thinks so, except for me, I'm going to attempt to convince you that you are all wrong, and I'm right about this being the best phone. And those two get all muddled up too. So there's, it, it, like most debates online, it's not even clear what people, people aren't all clear what, what it is they're debating about. And the final part that really, really muddles this up is part of what Gruber does on his blog and part of what any good blog does is entertain. This is, and it, same thing with Rush Limbaugh and all those other things. Like entertainment is part of, of, you know, good writing, uh, you know, anything. And people want to be entertained. And entertainment is good. Uh, and a lot of people uh, dismiss Rush Limbaugh stuff by saying, oh, he's just an entertainer. But Gruber is an entertainer as well. And so he will do things that if you were, to use your favorite stuff, if he was a Vulcan, he would not do these things. He would not take the snarky jabs at stuff, right? He wouldn't cherry pick the one line about... Uh, about Android being slow from the giant review that was mostly favorable to Android, right? Uh, because that's like, that's not, that's gets into the fairness. That's because that's, that's not fair. That's taking a cheap shot or something. So you're saying this, it's just not fair. It's not a fair situation. Well, I'm saying that entertainment has value and you can't dismiss it. Like, you can't say, oh, you can, you can never make, cheap shots like that it's you should never do that because that's a boring blog that nobody wants to read you know and and that's that's a standard to which you can't hold anybody that they can't ever do something just because it's fun and i you were asking before whether i thought gruber was a, a partisan or not i think he's he's trying very hard to be intellectually honest about what he does but he has to balance that with his desire to be entertaining. And I think it's also his need to be entertaining because again, if you're not, if you want to be successful, there has to be some sort of entertainment value. If it's just a simple dry analysis that has a much smaller audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, but, but not just in sort of a mercenary way of, I want people to read it, but but because you know, that's, that's his nature. That's most of our nature. We like entertaining things and we want to be entertaining ourselves. So he has to balance that with, with the desire to do that. Uh, And I think, the essential struggle that I see in in his work is that he he wants to strike the right balance there, but it is it's in his nature to enjoy being snarky, to enjoy taking the cheap shots. Uh, but he's always conscious of, well, geez, I don't want to overdo this. Like, am I am I going too far? Am I not? Am am I too busy looking for the little snarky thing? than I am uh, t- to to realize that there are, the facts are changing and I need to reevaluate my opinion. And I think he's constantly reevaluating that uh, and is very conscious of that. And that's why I think he's not a partisan because a partisan is not fretting over whether th- whether what they're doing 
is intellectually honest. What all a partisan is worrying about is how can I make sure that no matter what anyone says, I continue to make, to try to convincingly say that my position is correct. My, the thing that I decided, you know, 20 years ago, that's all partisans worried about. They're worried about d- defending their reputation and never looking like they're wrong. And that's not what Gruber is worried about from my perspective. But I think he does struggle with that balance. Like for example, the, the claim chowder thing um, where he notes people making bold predictions that he thinks are going to be very wrong, right. catalogs them. And later when it turns out that they are very wrong, he comes back and, uh, and because it's entertaining, it's entertaining. He enjoys doing it. A lot of people enjoy reading it. Right. And, and you can't say, you know, what is he, what role is he doing there? All he's basically doing is saying, here's what somebody says. And I'll file that away for claim chowder, which what he's saying is, I think this person is wrong about this, but I'll just keep it here and we'll see who's right in time. Uh, you know, and then when, when the facts uh, later on, when it either comes to pass or it doesn't, he puts it up and it's much more entertaining when it doesn't come to pass. But I think if he filed something away for claim chowder and the person turned out to be hundred percent right, I think he would post that and say, I put this up, filed this way for claim chowder. And it turned out this guy was exactly right. And I think he would also in that post talk about what it is that made him think that the person wasn't right and what and what changed like why was i wrong about this i think he would he would want to examine that and he would write something about here's why i was wrong i thought x y and z but it turned out you know uh, it, the, the fact that that happens rarely again is sort of the curse of being someone who likes apple's products and thinks they're going to be successful during a 10 year span when apple was very successful and lots of people bought its products uh, so I think the seed of this whole fanboy thing and Topolsky's thing, there, there's a reason for that feeling because I believe he really does struggle with balancing the entertainment value and his own uh, personal inclination to, to, to be snarky against his uh, strong desire not to be a partisan because I think he just doesn't like those kind of people and doesn't want to be one of those people. And I don't, I don't think he is. But he is a human being and uh, that that is that is something that he struggles with striking that balance and and like i said it's not like you're oh, i'm struggling against this this uh this evil nature i have i have to i have this bad thing that i want to do and i have to fight against it and it's like the, the perfect solution would be well completely fight you know dominate it and never never give in to that urge that's not that's not the right balance the right balance is not uh none of that because that's not interesting that's not entertaining so that's that's the real tricky part of here it's not as if you can you know go for abstinence and say, I will never make a snarky comment. I will never make a joke. I will never cherry pick some piece of information out of a larger article just so I can make a snide comment about it. Because that's that's lowering the value of your blog. It's not just supposed to be about some, you know, uh, dry factual accounting and analysis of, uh, of factors. And speaking of dry factual accounting and analysis, uh, sorry for this intro, but uh, <laughs> Horace did do of Asimco. You knew what I was talking about. You I, were I knew right away. You are complicit in that. In uh-huh. that uh, Asimco, whose site I love, I think that he also struggles with the same thing and perhaps less successfully. I don't know. I haven't read him enough. I've been at 10 years reading uh, Gruber, I think, you know, or more than that. How long has it been? Long time. Long time. Uh, I think I have a better handle on his personality than I do Horace's. I've just started listening to his podcast and, and his blog is relatively new. Uh, his his premise always seems to be uh, Apple as a company is undervalued by the stock market uh, and Apple is a disruptive force and the incumbents in the mobile industry are... Uh, here's why the incumbents in the mobile industry are being disrupted. And he definitely gathers evidence and facts to support his, his premise. Uh, he, I think he has to look out for the same type of thing. 
you know, don't get too married to to the, the premise that the incumbents are, you know, are being disrupted by Apple and that Apple is undervalued. I think, I think the closest he came to, to working on this was the post he had where he was trying to think about uh, why why is Apple undervalued? What is it about Apple that makes people, despite their tremendous success and they constantly have huge profits, uh, why is their P.E. ratio so low? And what he came to in this post was that the market doesn't value, doesn't think that the ability to make hit products is is a quality that a company can have. They just think it's a fluke. So despite the fact that Apple keeps you know, disrupting new businesses and making hit product after hit product. They think that's not repeatable. That's, that's not actually a strategic advantage of the company, you know? It's, it's too, it's, it's like, it's like uh, gambling. It's like, well, you know, well, so what? But you can't count on them being able to do that versus other things like, oh, they're very good at, at you know, manufacturing or they have lots of, uh, they have a powerful distribution chain or some other asset of a company that, can, that, that Wall Street feels like they can bank on. But it's like, oh, they've, you know, they own all this copper. I don't know, I was going back to the phone company. They own all this copper and they have this great infrastructure and that's a competitive advantage. Uh, and we believe in that. But they just simply don't believe that it, innovation and making great products and design is is repeatable. And every time it happens, they're like, well, they just got lucky with that iPad thing. Well, that iPhone thing, they just got lucky. People happen to like their phone and they, they just they just cannot convince themselves that it's, a, it's something that's uh, worth rewarding with we believe that in the future they will continue to do this. Um, and so that I thought was a great analysis of why it's undervalued. But when I read that article, I thought, yeah, but Horace doesn't believe that. That kind of the subtext of the article was that this, the stock market is wrong. And actually, uh, this is uh, a repeatable uh, quality. This, this, this will lead to future successes. It is an indicator of, of uh, future success just as much as other things. And I'm not sure he completely made that case. Uh, and he did, uh, you know, it. Like when I read that article, I came away with the opposite impression. Like I thought it was a great explanation of why they're undervalued. And I thought, you know what? That kind of makes sense. And I might also undervalue Apple because I also believe that it, not that it's not repeatable, but that it is a riskier thing to depend on than uh, other factors that are, are, you know, less tied to human nature and stuff. It's for the same, you know, it's because the stock market doesn't understand what is it that makes this a good design. You know, they couldn't have done it themselves and they don't, it's like art, it's like art. We don't understand why this is great. And so we don't feel comfortable betting on the fact that they'll do it again because we don't even know how they did it this time. Uh, and I think there's something to that. And I actually, it, that article made me think that the, the market's valuation of Apple is actually more rational than I had previously thought. Whereas I <laughs> think he, where he was coming from was that uh, this shows why the market doesn't get Apple and they it's their lack of understanding that's making this undervalued, and I think it should be overvalued. So we'll see uh, if Apple takes a turn or whatever. We'll see if uh, I continue to read Horace's stuff. If his, if I believe his premise is changing, you know, I don't. I don't know if you get that same feeling when reading his stuff. It's. I think it's unfair to give an analysis of that because the body of work he has is just so much smaller than Gruber's body of work. So really, the, the graph isn't long enough for me to to uh, make any statements on the prediction but i think but it's, but it's obvious that he's super smart and it's obviously he thinks a lot about this and he he presents facts and graphs and figures and if he's wrong on them when he has been and gotten something wrong he's updated it and you know so he's definitely trying to be intellectually honest as well uh it's, it's a struggle that we all have now i the final thing here before i wrap up i'll throw myself into this thing like so where do i fall in this continuum uh i kind of I kind of take the easy way out because 
it's a lot easier to tell to say what's wrong with something than it is to stake out a position where you try to say what's right about something like I, I you know to say that uh, Apple does these things very well I think these things are very valuable I think you know I'm not that type of thing has never been in my nature and, and it is my nature to just say here's what Apple's doing wrong and here's what they're messing up and here's what's wrong with this product and to a great extent it's a lot easier to do that. You open yourself up to less of the criticism of, of being a, a fanboy. You, you still get it. You can't escape it on, on, on the web. But what I would tend to get was whatever thing I'm complaining about, the other side, especially when I was unknown, I would write a big thing complaining about all the stuff that's wrong with early versions of Mac OS X, and people would say, you're just a stupid PC user. If you would ever use the Mac, maybe you would know uh, what's good about you know, that type of thing. Because they had no idea who I was. So with with no foreknowledge, they assumed I was a PC user, and this is the first time I'd ever looked at Apple product. Why did they assume that? Because they said bad things about it. And the only people who say bad things about uh, Apple products are people who have never used them, right? And as people have come to know me, that's balanced out a little bit. People, but people will read the stuff I write and say, oh, I love these articles. They're very objective. They're, you know, it's the only objective analysis of this type of thing. And my articles are the farthest thing from objective. They say objective because I say bad things about something that I obviously like. I obviously, am, people now know I'm a Mac user, I'm an Apple guy or whatever. And then I say all sorts of bad things about Apple stuff and that, that's objective because I'm saying bad things about like my thing, about my team. Uh, that's not being objective. I'm, I, th- my articles are almost entirely opinion-based. I try to support my opinions and argue for them, and most of the opinions are about what's wrong because that's just in my nature to do that type of thing. But it's, it doesn't make it more objective. It makes people feel more comfortable that I'm not a partisan when they see me dumping on the stuff that I obviously love. And that's one of the reasons I have never written about Windows or some other product that I'm not interested in and don't have experience with. One is, you know, I don't have experience with it. I wouldn't really know what I was talking about. And the other one is, like, if I was honest about what I thought about Windows, I would just savage it. And that's a less interesting article to read because people would be like, well, oh, big surprise, the Apple guy hates Windows, right? And, and, and I'm just not, I'm not even interested enough in it to criticize it, right? But, but I'm very interested in Apple stuff and, and, you know, like TiVo. I'm constantly complaining about TiVo. People assume I hate TiVo. I try to reiterate this every time. It's still, it's still the best thing out there. If there was something better than TiVo, I would buy it. Uh, people are more willing to believe, I think, that I have no loyalty to TiVo, that I would switch in a second if there's something better, which is 100% true. But all of us big Apple nerds all say the same thing. Like, well, if there's a, a phone that's like 10 times better than the iPhone, we'll all switch to it because our loyalty is to the, to the thing that's awesome. Uh, Apple is a much longer-term relationship than it is with TiVo or some other thing. So I think all of us are constantly worried, like, if that happened... Would I take too long to notice that the, that the uh, iOS has gotten crappy and is actually a better platform? You know, and I think that's why all of us were like, "Let's check out WebOS. Let's make sure that w- what we say to each other and to ourselves is really true. That if something was better than the iPhone, we would use it. Well, then we owe it to ourselves to make sure we check out iOS and make sure we're not the, those of us who are interested in being intellectually honest. Let's let's check it out uh, because we don't want to we don't want to dismiss it offhand. And it does have some things that appeal to us. So, you know, Windows Phone Seven. Uh, I know Gruber's very interested in taking a look at that. I think he's got one of those phones right now. So am I. Like, we want to make sure we want to test ourselves. Okay, so you say you're gonna, you, you'll like whatever the best thing is. Well, uh, you know, you better make sure you look at everything so that what, the second that thing that's better than the iPhone comes out, you're on it. Because if you're late to it, people are gonna say, "See, you resisted for three months or whatever. You didn't recognize that Windows Phone Seven was better than iOS." Uh, and, and you know, and, and those of us who are interested in who don't want to be partisans. 
want to make sure that we're on the better thing in a second. Like the, the standard is higher for us because we are such fans of one particular thing for a really long time. Uh, so for me, I, I don't come in for a lot of this fanboy stuff. Occasionally I do, uh, but you know, that's on like a single article basis. If I write some article about why something's good and something's bad, the fanboys come on either side of it. But the, the body of my work, when I think back at my work, what did I become known for? I became known for writing articles, writing articles that explain what's wrong with Mac OS X. Right. Like that, that, in my head, that's how I see it. Maybe other people see it as like writing articles that glorify Mac OS X or being a Mac fanboy. But, it, but I really, really, I see it as just like, I'm the guy who complains about Apple stuff. And there's usually an equal or sometimes even greater amount of saying, oh, here's the thing that I really love. And I think that stands out because I spent the rest of the thing complaining about what was wrong. Uh, maybe it's become more balanced. Like the early Mac OS X reviews, I was just dumping all over it because I was an angry classic Mac OS user and all those other things. Versus the Lion review, where I think I may have crossed over now because lots of people are pissed off about Lion for various reasons. Uh, and they'll read my Lion review and say, you weren't hard enough on it. Like you dumped on the calendar, but you were, you know, I, like my opinion of Mac OS X is starting to become less severe than the the most severe critics. Whereas in the beginning, my opinion of Mac OS X was probably the most severe of anybody, either because they had never seen it and assumed it was just fine. I'm telling them, no, it's awful. Or because they, you know, were Apple fanboys, real Apple fanboys, and like like everything that Apple does. Uh, and, and, and now I just complained about calling someone a fanboy and dismissing everything I have to say. But in this context, I'm using it in the aggregate, not an individual person or whatever. But there are people who, uh, are, uh, again, I'll get back to partisans. There, there are partisans who instinctively will like everything Apple does, and they're try- going to try to support that premise. And they re- definitely did that with Mac OS X. They, they would say, it's not too slow. It's fine. Mac OS 10.0. It was too slow, you know. But they will, you know, swear up and down that it wasn't. So, I don't know. I, I probably do a very bad job of... Uh, to, uh, correctly seeing where I stand in this continuum, maybe I do a, a better job of, of looking at other people, so I'll leave it to if Gruber or Horace ever want to talk about this topic again, which I doubt they will, they can feel free to tell me uh, how well I've struggled against being a partisan in my uh, on and off again uh, writing career of much lower volume than uh, Gruber, definitely. The only other thing I had in here was that uh, that horse word that I can't say on this podcast thing by Topolsky. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Horse horse crap. There you go. Uh, is the uh, euphemism for the actual title of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I covered most of the same bases. I might go into the specifics on that thing, but that pulls in M.G. Siegler and this whole other thing that I don't want to get into this moment. Uh, and so we still didn't get to the thing I left off of my last follow-up show, so I will continue to leave it off. Uh, what, what are we at for total now, time-wise? Time-wise, whatever it was before... Plus, oh, so so for the people who are listening to this the usual way, which means a podcast, they have downloaded it to their favorite device or they're playing it over their favorite device and they're enjoying this. Uh, what you don't know is that there was this whole middle segment where John Syracuse's in, uh, house shut down, the whole house shut down. And it turns out uh, he was without power, and uh, we had to stop the show, and we picked it back up. And uh, the, the, for those of you who were not listening live, the real test will be to see if you can figure out at what point we actually lost and, and, and then resumed. Because there was like a, an hour or so of time where you were just running around your house like a chicken with its head cut off. 
So when you, when John asks how what's the total time, I actually don't know. I, I I'm assuming we're over an hour, but I only know right now how much uh, time we've been recording since we restarted, which is 18 minutes. So it's been a it's been at least a good, I would guess 70 80 minutes. It's a good show. I want to throw one more little thing in there. Yeah, throw it in there. Time for. Do it. This is also from the, the talk show. Do it. Uh, you and Gruber were talking about Twitter. Uh, and what, what Gruber said was, uh, we're talking about uh, the changes in Twitter and how the Twitter that that seems to be promoted by the latest version of the Twitter client and website is not the Twitter that the people who joined in 2006 came to yeah. know and love, yep. right? Yep. Like that was about... Uh, finding a little place like a water cooler he says where you, you you're talking to your friends because you just follow your friends they follow you and and they're overlapping sets and there are fringes doesn't mean that you follow every single person that your friend follows but you know there's a big big overlap in your little circle and it's just a place for you to chat for, with people in your circle like an IRC channel that's you know that you don't have to be in all the time or like I am but but with smaller chunks of messages a place to chat during the day that's the thing that those of us who joined Way back when, I think I joined in January 2007, but a lot of people joined 2006. And uh, tiny brief history on this. I remember when Gruber joined Twitter, I think it was at South by Southwest or some other conference or whatever. And, and he was like, hey, check this out. It's like, it was basically the Twitter page showing people, it was the Twitter homepage, like the public timeline. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, here's, here's what people are saying at South by Southwest or whatever the thing was. So this was a time when you could go to the Twitter homepage and see the public timeline and read it because it was it was just a bunch of nerds that you knew talking about something that you were interested in. Yeah, every everybody that was there, you knew you knew them or you knew of them at least. And that's all who was on Twitter. Like so you oh, could just the read, whole thing. you could literally read every tweet in the front page and it was and it was and, relevant uh, to you. Participate. Yeah. So but that and then I and it was a web page and you know, twitter.com slash, you know, just the, the brute web page and it showed a bunch of people talking and each thing was like, you know, 140 characters or whatever. And I'm like, what the hell is this? People type stuff and it goes on a web page and then people look at the web page with the stuff that you said it's like it's just, i thought it was the stupidest thing i'd ever seen <laughs> i mean it's like it's like take irc or i am and make it way way worse put it on a web page i don't want to go to a stupid web page and see a bunch of things that people said so i didn't sign up in 2006 uh but by the time 2007 rolled around i, I caved i think it was when i started hearing about the uh Twitter clients because like all right so now this now it's different now I'm not looking at this stupid web page I've got a little client app I don't remember when the first version of Twitter if it came out maybe that was maybe uh, that was around that time but something got me over the edge and, and what I quickly came to realize from actually using it once you join you know I made some tweets is that it was a replacement for something that I've always had in my computing life uh, it was IRC very early on where it was like a channel with a bunch of other people but for all four years that I was in college ninety three to ninety seven uh, they had it was kind of like a mailing list. You would send an email to some address at your at university at your university, and someone made a reader. It was like the 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 bulletin board thing or the messages thing, and someone made a reader application that would read the mail spool for that because it was publicly readable mail spool. Would read that mail spool and present the messages in that mail spool in order, and then you had a little dot file in your home directory that would tell you uh, what the last one you read was, and they were numbered. All right, so was, you know, post number one, number two, number three, and your little dot file would say you're on number three. So the next time you read, it would start with number four and number five. So you would, you would be catching up on this thing. So there's various names for this uh, system. And uh, it used to be UBB, U, uh, University Bulletin Board, and then later on the CS system, there was a thing called Forum, Forum at CS. Uh, same exact concept. 
that was basically Twitter. Uh, except the only exception was you didn't choose who to follow. The, the following was implicit by well, if you if you read UB UBB, if you read UB, it was just you and the other UBers, and there was like twenty people who did this in the entire university. So you were a self-selected group of friends who all followed each other. Although you could have skipped things that lots of people I wrote, uh, as of course I would, I wrote a, a client application in Perl that allowed you to have files that filtered out certain people if you didn't want to see posts from certain people or whatever. But it was basically Twitter. No, no, no length limit, but the lengths, the lengths were generally short. And you would just catch up and read the same way you catch up on Twitter now. Uh, and I had that in my life, you know, because 93 was the first time I really got online, like on Ethernet, on, on you know, the Internet. I had that in my life for the entire time. And when that went away and I graduated, you know, we had, we had simulations of that and, and IRC channels and other type of things. And Twitter was the new version of this. So that's the Twitter the Gruber thinks that doesn't have enough broad enough, broad enough appeal. And that's why Twitter is pushing this whole like trending topics or activity view and the hashtags and stuff like that. And then what you said was that Twitter's decided to go in this direction, de-emphasizing direct messages and, and not, ha- not making Twitter look like the thing that we all uh, have been using because it's decided that hashtags are the way it can monetize the service. Now, what I think of those two opinions is that you were much closer to being right than, than Gruber was mm. because I, I think that's, that's 100% what it is. I, I, I think that the Twitter that we used in 2006 does have humongously broad appeal. I, that's that little circle of friends who you just talked to. Yeah. Everyone would benefit from using Twitter like that. Everyone will love it. Everyone does that. Everyone has some equivalent to that online. Uh, and Twitter being used like that has huge value, huge broad value. And I think the, the only reason that, that Twitter is not pushing in that direction is because they could not figure out how to make money on that. Basically because like those of us who use Twitter in that way would be pissed if they said, okay, every, every 10 tweets we're going to insert an ad. Right. And if your client application blocks that ad, we will remove its API key. And also, you know, it just gets into this whole big thing. They just could not figure out how to make money that way. And think of all the things that I've used in the past like this. IRC, uh, University Bulletin Board, uh, Forum, all the all those different... No one was getting paid for that. There was no money. It was a tiny little piece of university infrastructure used for free. No one was making any money. No ads. No, you know, the IRC thing. We didn't know who cared who who ran, you know, freenode.net or how the IRC channel goes. It was... There was no business plan there. Twitter is a service that's huge with billions of people in it. Someone's got to pay for all that infrastructure. And the only way Twitter apparently has figured out to get enough money to pay for that infrastructure is with this hashtag business. So that's depressing to me. Uh, but I, I definitely disagree that the, the Twitter that we use doesn't have broad appeal. I just, it's just They just could not figure out how to monetize it. I agree with you. Of course you do, because that means you were right. Hmm. Gruber was wrong. Well, it's not so important to me th- that he was right or wrong. I just, I just think it's, it's very telling to me that. Well, it's what surprises me is that n- more people aren't talking about it in those in in those terms. In other words, more people aren't identifying what seems to me to be fairly obvious that people keep saying. I don't understand why they're doing this to Twitter. Why is this? That, there's an icon here. I didn't use I don't know what that is. Why is this? Like, follow the money. I mean, they, that's it. They need, they need to find out the way. And you, uh, w- one of the responses to that, I wanted to add a follow-up from another, <laughs> another show, from the talk show here, is a lot of people wrote in to say, hashtags on Twitter remind me, especially the way that the media and TV shows and things use them, 
it very, very much reminded people who were writing in uh, of AOL keywords. I was going to say QR codes, but that's a much better analogy. AOL keywords, yeah. Uh, and I mean, the, and both of those, I think, are valid. Uh, but for the longest time, every single, you know, you'd see a TV commercial for toothbrushes. Keyword on AOL, T-brush. You know, I mean, it was just the most, it was, it was so, so cheesy. Uh, but that's, you know, this is back in the day when so many people were using AOL. That was how they were, you know, this is back like in the you've got mail days, you know, with with people who just, that was their internet. The AOL was the internet to them. AOL was online. That's what that meant. It was AOL. And for them, the keyword and, and a company getting and using a keyword, that was like, that was a big marketing thing for them. And there's probably people, hopefully, hopefully most of the people listening to this show have either never heard of that or forgotten it because it was a dark time for us on the internet. But And that's how AOL made money. They sold yeah, that's keywords. how they made money. They would sell the keywords. You'd have a movie or a TV show or a product and you wanted to get listed there, you'd, you'd get the keyword and that's how people would like find your stuff on AOL. And now, you know, you don't, the difference is with Twitter, of course, uh, I don't, I don't think anybody has to pay. Now, maybe they do a thing where you can pay and make sure that you're the first result in the keyword. If they're not doing that, they should well, they be. Have, they have the trending topics thing. I don't even, that's the other shady thing about Twitter. Like, you're not sure how they're monetizing. Right, and that, no. that's my big question. That's exactly my big question is, if I put in, let's say I put in a hashtag for, uh, you know, I, this is going to be a, a horrible example, but for software. Now, if there's a software company out there that might want the results for that, can they go to Twitter and essentially buy the software hashtag? And if, because all along after the, the implementation and adopt, I mean, we were using hashtags before it was technically something Twitter supported really. And very quickly they supported it. I believe, I mean, people were putting the hashtags in there and before you could really even do anything, but search looking for that, that string. Maybe I'm wrong about that. The point is, very quickly after that, Twitter adopted this as the way to categorize your tweets. And people who were talking about a topic would, of course, add the hashtag and it would make it easier for them to find. What I'm wondering is now, you know, I remember when you had trending hashtags and things like that. There was a thing Lady Gaga was doing where it was like monsters or little monsters hashtag was like the number one thing. And they were trying to get more people to t- put tweets up with that hashtag to like make it go to the top so that uh, now things have changed. And I'm under the impression and maybe wrong that like you're saying, some are, are those things promoted hashtags or, or are they, you know, it would be like when you go to Google and you do a search, you'll see the promoted uh, promoted results at the top. Do you ever click those? I uh, the the Google ones. Yeah. Every once in a while, they will put one up there. Yeah, I usually end up doing there if I've checked the first one or two pages of results and not found anything. Then I'll give the advertising ones a try. Or if the results are so awful that they, that they clearly look completely irrelevant and the ad does look relevant, I'll try it. So I do occasionally click occasionally. Them. And and you know, with the hashtags, it would make sense for Twitter to be selling these things, but then. Those of us who have all along been used to thinking of them as being a more natural audience created kind of thing, crowdsourced kind of thing, to know that maybe they are, maybe they're not anymore, it, and this isn't a big deal, but it does erode a little bit of the trust that we have in Twitter and the Twitter community to know that maybe 
this isn't quite what it seems. And, and they're certainly not being transparent about that. I, you know, there are people, and again, this goes back to the earlier topic from a couple months ago when Twitter did start changing the API and it did start to change the way that uh, the website functioned. These were all things that were geared to change the way that people were using Twitter and the way that they think of, of Twitter uh, so that it would, it would line up with whatever it was that, that they wanted to do to, uh, to create money for themselves. I mean, now, now a lot of the people I talk to, John Gruber said it on the talk show, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what you used to, to access Twitter. He says, oh, he never goes to the website. Now, his reason was, it's too slow. Do you use the website? Do you go to twitter.com? Never, not unless like every other avenue is cut off to me. And, and it's interesting that you say that. I, I use the Twitter website probably more than I use an app. I do have the Twitter app on the Mac, and I, I use TweetBot on, uh, on the iPhone. But it, it, if you haven't been to the site in a while, it looks more like the app than it ever has. And uh, it's got the same home connect and discover up at the top of it. In the sidebar, there are things about it that are just pushing me away from using this latest This latest revision to the website is the thing that's making me not use the website anymore. Up until this last one, I could, I could abide it. But now I can't abide it. There's this who to follow nonsense in the sidebar. I'm not sure if you've seen this. Well, you know, to, you can't get fair, rid of it. You can't get rid of it. To be fair to Twitter and, and to support Gruber's argument a little bit, I think you got it slightly wrong in that the, the Twitter that we use doesn't have broad appeal. But the, the root problem, well, so even before I get to that, I want to say all the stuff that they're doing with the hashtags is not because like that's how they that's how they think they can make money. I don't think it's even clear yet that yes, that is the best way to make money or that it will make them the most money. But it's clear that this is the direction they want to go and they want to, they think they can make money this way, not the other way. So I don't right. want to make it think like, oh, they're doing hashtags because they're getting rich off of it. But I don't, I don't think they are yet. I don't think they've figured no, it I, out. You're yet, right. But you're it, right. But it's clear they're going like, they must, they had all their meetings. Say, so how can we make money? Let's steal different things and say, we think we can make money this way. And they're going in that direction. And the, the answer is not clear now. But the other thing is that the way we use Twitter, and I've seen this before with, with uh, the, the Bolton board stuff and IRC and stuff, it's not easy to explain that to to non-nerds and even to nerds like when i saw twitter i I didn't immediately recognize twitter as that thing that i had been doing for years and years Uh, even though i knew the value of that type of thing that online water cooler i didn't recognize twitter as that thing Hmm. and even if you explain this to somebody i mean we've all seen this phenomenon people you you get someone to join twitter and they don't get it they they just like i don't understand what what is this people just typing things how do you know what's going on and what twitter as a product from the beginning into now has always been trying to do is their problem is how do we express to people that this thing has value? We know we have dedicated users who get value from this, but we have to take these new users and without like calling them up on the phone and at length trying to explain to them how they can get value out of our product, like lead them into it. And that's all like, you know, recommended followers or who you might be interested in or what's trending. They're trying to say, come on, there's stuff here. And we don't know. We can't tell you exactly where your little circle of people is going to be, especially like if you don't have a bunch of online nerd friends. Like say you're just, you know, you just come online, you knew nobody else who was who was on Twitter and you just come online. It's like, well, either convince all your other friends to go on it, but then you got friends on it. Like there's no one holding your hand saying this is how you can get value out of this. We had it easy relatively and, and I even resisted. It was like, but we were all kind of there together. We knew who to follow. When I went to follow John Gruber, he was already there. I knew who John Gruber was. I knew I want, you know what I mean? We were all kind of in it together. But with new people, you just drop them into this. I've seen it with like my family 
And you know, my my wife, for example, I think she 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 was on the the university bulletin board thing. It's actually sort of how we met, or partly how we knew about each other. So she knows the value of this type of thing. But on Twitter, like it's just it doesn't. She's not been able to penetrate it. She uses she uses a different a different service that does something similar, but because all her friends aren't on it, or she doesn't think it's important for the, all her friends to be on it or whatever, what she does is she just reads my timeline because it's like a good proxy for her and doesn't even have an account of her own and just reads my timeline to see what's going on you know, with my stuff on Twitter and the people who are responding to me, right? But And, and my, my parents, the same type of thing. Like, I tried to get them signed up for Twitter and my brother, and so they just, they just don't get it. So all the stuff that Twitter has always been doing is been, we got to find a way to... to show these people what value our product has. Mm. And that, I think, is, is part of all this thing. You know, that, that's like a con- confluence of things. Well, the hashtag stuff is we think we can make money this way with these you know, trending topics and advertisers and putting things in like, we don't know how we're going to do it quite yet, and it's kind of been ad hoc and who knows or whatever, but we think we can do something about this. And also, we think this is a good way to, once someone lands on Twitter, to say, here's people you might be interested in. Here, check this out, you know. Uh, you know, other, like Go- I think Google Plus does a really good job of it where it will say, here's people you might want to put in your circles based on who you've emailed and who's also on, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Google Plus has access to more. When you land on Twitter, you've got nothing, right? When you land on Google Plus, presumably you have a Gmail account or something like that where it has some better information about it. So it's not, it's not nefarious or not entirely nefarious, <laughs> but it, it is, you know, it's them struggling with uh, how to... How, how to be successful with their product and they're, they're doing what they think is the best way to do it. And, and to be honest, I don't know. I, I've, I've failed to, to convince people close to me in my life of the value of Twitter and I'm, you know, I'm talking right to them. So I, I recognize their, uh, their difficulty. And of course, of course, all of us who know exactly what the value is of Twitter is don't like these changes. We don't need any help. Get this crap out of our face. We know exactly how we want it to work. Uh, and I feel bad for you using the website because now well, the I'm, not, I'm, moving, I'm pretty much done, done with it now. Yeah, it's moving farther away from what you want out of, wanted out of the website. Like the, the, new, the new Twitter, this is the new new Twitter. The new Twitter is like, yeah, it's got some weird stuff, but it doesn't get in the way of me <laughs> using it the way I want to use it. Right. And now it's like, he's actively thwarting you. Right, <laughs> right. I'm, fi- I'm fighting with it. So I'm done, moving away. Now I got to switch over to the uh, Twitter app and Twitterific and stuff. Get that going. Yeah, I've been, and speaking of Twitter apps, I've been a Twitterific user from the first release on both the, uh, on both iOS and the Mac. I've tried all the other clients. I, in fact, I bought TweetBot when it was on sale. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the sale is over, but if, if it's not over, you should go buy TweetBot. Uh, Tweety, official Twitter app. Like, I have, I have many, many Twitter clients, Tweety on the Mac. Yeah, me too. TweetDeck. But I've tried them all, always gone back to Twitterific. And the reason I go back to Twitterific is because it has a unified timeline. Right. So and, you, know, you can you can you can sit down and say, I've been gone from Twitter for X hours. You can scroll through it and it's gonna show you everything the from the people you follow and it's going to show your at mentions in line. In chronological order. Chronological right? order. So you know what's what's going on as it happened. And you know what else has that? University Bolton Board forum cs and irc channels there, right. and so it's not it's not shocking why i do that right. and i completely understand why people like gruber can't use it because once you get a certain number of followers you can't the the replies just drown out and you're just like all right already i just want to see the people i actually follow but i don't have that many followers so i am still 100 i read my timeline in order every single tweet in chronological order and so i'm shocked at how many Twitter clients don't support that model because I have to think there are more people like me without so many followers that you're overwhelmed by replies than there are like Gruber who having a separate reply 
pain is just the only way to maintain your sanity, right? right. Like, yeah. It's weird to me, but but yeah, those are all great products, and I occasionally poke around and fire them up and use them and see what they're like, and I always update them to the new versions and check them out, but I've never left uh, Twitterific. True to the end. Yep. All right, so let's wrap, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, if you want to, you can follow John Syracuse on Twitter. He promises uh, he will reply to every single every single at mention. I do not promise that. He but does you promise that. And you, I, you can follow him at Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and I will not necessarily reply to every at mention, but I will try as hard as I can within limits. And you can also go to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical to hear uh, all of the previous episodes that we have recorded. That would be 45 of them stacked up. One after the other. Something really good to do over the Christmas uh, break. That's what I'm thinking. And uh, if you'd like to send us comments or feedback, go to 5by5.tv slash contact. Uh, as always, make John's day and go and review and rate the show in iTunes. Very easy thing to do, and it helps people find out about the show. Visit our sponsors, MailChimp.com and GetHarvest.com slash 5by5. The show notes are available 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 46. All of the links and stuff that we've been talking about will be in there. What else, John? That we are recording. A lot of people have asked if we're recording. Yes, we're recording next week. We don't, we don't take holidays. We don't take breaks. Well, we do, but just not next week. Right. No, we'll, we'll be here. We'll be right here. As long as I have power to my house. A lot of people on Twitter were outraged that you did... What? John has no UPS? I do have a UPS, but my UPS is undersized for my Mac Pro. So basically, when power goes out, I have to... You just have, it's, very, it's just long enough for you to like shut it down. No, I just put it to sleep because it, it'll stay for a long time when it's asleep. And, and actually, it's not that bad. Now, I could have gotten like five minutes of use out of it or whatever, but then I just put it to sleep. <laughs> but the problem is my networking equipment is not on the UPS. That's surprising. Why not? Oh, you know, it's just I've got just of, in this room right here. I've got one, two, three, three different UPSs just in this room, and half the yeah. networking stuff's in the other room. I'm under provisioned on the UPSs because I can't bear just spending so much money for a just gigantic lead acid battery. So my 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 UPS is undersized for a Mac Pro, and it's too far away from where the network stuff is, and it you know it's already undersized. So you don't want to be plugging more stuff into it. And finally, I don't even know that like so the FiOS ONT has its own. UPS in it, but I don't know if the thing at the other end of the FiOS connection had power, you know, because it's like the whole whole neighborhood went down. Yeah, it's because we're having crazy winds here, so I assume really something blew down. What have they done to the earth, John? It's I don't know. What have they done to our fair sister? It's they. It's us. All right, uh, so that's about done for this week. We'll be back again next week. John Syracuse, nosy. That's right. People keep asking about the good for my wife. This morning at breakfast, where's the Goodfellas episode? This is this called this is my wife asking nagging. I said, uh, I said, how? What do you know about the Goodfellas episode? She's like, well, I, you know, I want to listen to it. She's like, why haven't you done it? I'm like, when am I going to watch it? She's like, well, that's true. Uh, and I, she's go. like, you, you've Turn. seen it. She's like, you've seen it. When when I started dating her back in college, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, she I used to watch the thing weekly. I just had a VCR tape. I would just pop the tape in and just sit there and watch it. She's like, Dan, you've seen this thing like 300 times. She's like, why yeah, do you need notes to... though, right? That's what I told her. I said, I, have, I don't have a, a, a deck of notes to, to go over. I said, plus I need to see it at least twice. I need to watch the one version that has the little pop-up video things 
you know, that have the little trivia things. And then I need to watch it a second time, you know, the, the, the uncensored version of it, which I, I need to get a copy of. So anyway, it's, it's, there's work involved in a lot of time, but I'm going to try very hard. People keep, you know, thinking, oh, take it on your Christmas vacation. I don't have one. I don't get any time off. I don't get a vacation. So I, it's not like I have that. We got family coming in. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I really want to do it. So we'll do it. We're definitely going to do it. All right. Well, I've, I've got my notes. I'm ready to go whenever you are. You don't really need notes. I mean, you've lived this. Uh, this I is your life. No- I needed notes. But it's your life. What do you have to need notes for? It's your life. It's because it's just too much to remember. And all. Okay. The, only, the only thing I can do without notes is like Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars. Because in The Incomparables, I, did, I didn't even need to rewatch those movies. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> those are the only ones I don't have to do without. And I, the, did, re- I did rewatch. I did rewatch Empire, but I didn't rewatch uh, A New Hope. But yeah, I didn't need uh, much notes for any of them. Oh, I want you. I want you to j- uh, journal something for the next episode. What's that? I got the uh, the that uh, Star Wars we thing. Yeah, you put that link in the show notes. I assume that's what you meant. You got that? Did you play it? Yeah, played it. I, I want to. Ta- I don't talk about it now. I don't want to ruin it. Put it down right, for the next yeah. week's show. No, give I, give I, people. I a felt like I. Uh, not that I misled you, but there was things that I omitted from my description of that game that thinking back to it, I should not have omitted. So I game we'll seems pretty cool. It seems, it seems fine, but we'll go into it next week. Have a good week, John. You too.